once upon a time, in a world with faith and fairness, there was something hidden. Down the boundary! He's gonna go! Bobcats lead! Pitch on the way for Mikulacic. We got a miss! Mikulacic gets the strikeout! And for the first time in school history, the Bearcats are going to the Super Regionals! Get ready for a next-level show. Hello and welcome to Chasing the Cup. I'm your host, Jason Barfield, and the games may have stopped, but we haven't. So with no Bearcat action going on on the field, we thought we'd have a little bit of fun and kind of took, take a look back at some of the top moments that we've had as a Division I program. So we've put together uh, an NCAA tournament-style bracket, 68 of the top player achievements, games, moments, championships in Sam Houston history. We're actually going to put it up for a vote. We're going to let the fans decide what is number one in Sam Houston as a Division I program. Put together a panel of three members of the media who have been around this program for a long time and have seen a lot of this stuff in person. Kuda Robertson joined us. He broke down the championships bracket. We're going to talk to him about what his thought process was in putting all that together. Also joining us, Brian Lacey, a former sports editor at the Houstonian. He was a writer, a beat writer for the Bearcats for several years for the Huntsville Item and also served as managing editor of the Huntsville Item. He's going to talk through the top games of Sam Houston's Division I era. And then Cody Stark joins us. Cody was a longtime beat writer for the Huntsville Item as well. Previously had worked as a sports editor for the Houstonian. And Cody now works in our office in the sports information department covering the Bearcats that way. So we're going to get his perspective. He took a look at the top achievements by players region and set his numbers there. I took the top moments. I did the rankings on the top moments. And I'll kind of run you through what my rankings are on that, where I seated, and kind of some of the thought process there. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Kuda Robertson, and we're going to go through the top championships in Sam Houston history here on Chasing the Cup. Season tickets for the 2020 football season are on sale now. Secure your seats today and ensure you have the best view as the Cats look to claim a Southland Conference title. The Bearcats will play five games at Bauer Stadium this season, and as always, your season ticket will guarantee your spot at the Battle of the Piney Woods. You won't want to miss the action at NRG Stadium as the Bearcats look to make it 10 straight wins over SFA. To purchase your tickets, log on to GoBearcats.com slash tickets or call the Athletic Ticket Office at 936-294-1729 and we will see you at Bowers Stadium this fall. Eat them up, cats! And welcome back to Chasing the Cup. We're joined now by Cooter Robertson. Cooter had the task of taking on the championships bracket. And uh, before we get into that, Cooter, let's uh, let's just talk a little just general Sam Houston athletics. You've been involved in covering them since the late 70s. So you fully saw the transition from NAIA to Division II and then ultimately into the Division I era. Well, when I was a senior in high school was the – 
NAIA number one in the nation, Stephen F. Austin number two, or vice versa, over at the men's gym, and, and I'd be in the, the the stands for that, and you couldn't find tickets. But one of my best friends was the uh, son of Archie Porter, the head coach, so we got in there. So I got into the, you know being a Bearcat fan really early, and. Uh, <clears throat> It was, you know, it was pretty tough being a Bearcat fan back then. Baseball was always good. But we didn't have n- near as many sports, of course. And uh, golf was good. But it was all NAI. And then they moved to Division Two, And I got to go to Orange, California to broadcast the Bearcat, the Lady Cat softball team in the national tournament in the next year was uh it was in South Dakota at the same time that the Bearcat baseball team was in the division two regional. That was pretty interesting. And then when they went division one, I, I wasn't a big fan of that. Uh, you know, Southwest Texas had kind of started all that around here. I wasn't a big fan of going division one, but I guess I was being short sighted. And um well, when they went in, like I said, they went to NCAA Division II first, and then went to Division One, and it took a while to get things really going. And then they kept on adding, uh, they kept on adding athletic programs and so forth and so on. Uh, the, like I said, they'd had softball, they had men's tennis when I first started, and um, anyway, Sam Houston wasn't a big name, but you know, slowly. And into the 90s, things started happening, not on a regular basis, but uh, often enough that people started realizing who Sam Houston was and where Sam Houston is. Because before that, most people thought they were in Houston, out of state. Yeah, still deal with that. (laughs) Well, I know. (laughs) You know, and when I went to school here, which is mid-70s, You'd walk around the school, and you still see some of this, but not near as much. And this is back before schools got into merchandising and all that kind of stuff. But you'd see more Texas Longhorn A&M Aggie shirts on this campus than Sam Houston things. That doesn't happen anymore. You yeah. still see the UT and the A&M stuff. But most of the kids that go here now, they have – not just one, two, or three. They've got a, you know, a, a, almost a wardrobe full of at least some kind of Sam Houston T-shirt. And I think the the brand, the growth of the brand is what has really impressed me the most over the last 50 years. Yeah. Well, like I said, our bracket that we're going to be counting down over the next couple of weeks, it covers the Division One era. And before we get into the championships, just from your personal standpoint, favorite moments that you've experienced, um, and I, I know it's probably hard to to pin it down to to one or two, but just what are the things when you think back over the last really 30 years that really stands out in your mind? The Montana football game in 2011 at home, cold night. Montana was, well, they're not North Dakota State level, but they were the, they were the program in uh was it one double a still then yeah I, FCS, at FCS at that point was it FCS at that point 
that game obviously uh, stands fill, uh, spilling over at Bauer Stadium. The big Sam Houston chant from one side to the other. That's the night that started. Uh, getting off to the big lead and then having to hold on. Coach Willie Fritz having the guts to on that fourth and one call with Timothy Flanders that that uh, uh, that one sealed the game. Yeah, I mean, that sealed was the game. That yeah. was the play that sealed it. Um, on personal, from a personal standpoint, when the Bearcat baseball team got to the Super Regional for the first time ever for any Southland Conference team. And early in the game, first inning, wasn't it? The, the triple play, getting to call that triple play, that was, <laughs> you know, that just carried you for a while. But there's been others. The, the comeback at Eastern Washington, um, the win at Villanova, mm-hmm. um, the, the win at McNeese State when Sam Houston had to go down there in the first round of the playoffs. That was that same year, I think. That that was. Yeah. 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 And we realized going into that game that if Sam Houston could win that game, we're going to be at home the next week against Colgate because they'd already upset, what, Jacksonville State? I think so, yeah. 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 And those are, those are some of the – I know that's off – well, that's not all football because we had the triple play in there. One of the other more exciting times, and I wasn't involved – in covering this, but it was at the event was the, and it was on my list, uh, was the track championship over here at Bauer Stadium. Mm-hmm. And I was I was up on the porch outside the Bearcat Lounge watching that that afternoon. And that was, that was, and I'm not a big track guy, but that was pretty dead gum exciting. And that is actually on our, uh, that's on our list as well. Some of the things that we're gonna that we're gonna talk about in this breakdown. So let's get into your um, your seating and uh, and the games that you had. You had the championships, and it was kind of tough when we were kind of breaking everything out because you know we have this broken out into championships, into moments, into player achievements, and into games. And obviously, there's overlap here and there. And uh, so trying to decide. What stands out as a moment? What stands out as a championship? But for the championships you got, you obviously you went number one, 2011 football. What made that stand out to you as kind of the number one championship for Bearcat Athletics? Well, after um, Coach Randleman retired, after, what, after the 2004 season? And um, Sam Houston remained competitive for a couple of years, and then it just started going down. Never got to the depths that it did sometimes back in the NAIA days, but but um, they finally brought in Willie Fritz, who had been my cho- had been my choice for taking over for Randleman, but it did not happen. I had known Willie when he was here as a graduate assistant, and he'd been so successful at Central Missouri. When they finally brought him in, uh, well, he we all thought that the cupboard was totally bare. First game was at Baylor, and they really acquitted of themselves well there, but Baylor wasn't that good, and Sam stayed with them for a while, but Baylor finally pulled away. Then the next game was at Western Illinois, and it was a total disaster. We saw Western Illinois' 
running gun offense, the the up tempo, and they just beat the dog out of Sam Houston. And I recall coming back on the plane from that game. I rec- I had an empty seat in the in the plane next to me. I got my satchel out and I started looking at the schedule that was coming up and searching desperately for one game I thought the Bearcats might be able to win. Yeah. They had an off week the next week. And then they they Brian Bell, Timothy Flanders and some others had been put in the ball game late in that Western Illinois game. And they became starters from then on and Sam Houston ended up losing only three more games all in conference by a total of 11 points. Mm-hmm. The next year, when we went to the football media day down in Lake Charles, when they were all sitting there in the room and they, 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 they hand out the sheets with the preseason prognostications from the coaches and the sports information directors, and I think Sam Houston was picked fifth or sixth. And I'm looking at that and I'm saying, thinking about what I'd seen in the second half of that that season before, I started thinking to myself, they don't know what Sam Houston has. Yeah. They have no idea. And that's the year Sam Houston went undefeated in regular season, didn't lose until they lost to North Dakota State the first time they went to Frisco. And – uh, I think that was something that really brought this university up. Mm-hmm. It really brought this university up. And then they got to the championship game again the next year. They, did, they didn't they didn't fare as well as they did uh, the first time they were there, but they were on their way. And you know, even though it's been a little bit tough the last couple of years around the nation, around the FCS circles. Sam Houston is still thought of as a national power. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I yes. remember one of my favorite stories from that year. It was right after the Western Illinois game, and I'm walking downstairs with Coach Fritz, and Brian Bell is walking up. And Coach stops him and says, now, Brian, um, have you gone to see Coach yet? And he's like, no, sir. And he goes, you need to go talk to him. Do you, do you know what's about to happen here? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he goes, okay, we, you know, things are about to change. Okay, sir. And Bell goes walking off, and Willie looks over at me and goes, he has no idea what's about to happen because <laughs> I'm about to play a 145-pound kid at quarterback. I know, boy. He just <laughs> – you looked at him, you know, he's going to be our guy. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, Timothy Flanders was he, – what, he was five, what, six, five, seven? Mm-hmm. He's going to be our guy? Yeah. Well, it worked. It worked Helped out. having the Taylor twins, too. Yeah. I mean that was such a loaded yeah, team, and yeah. uh, I don't I don't think that there's going to be a whole lot of arguments with uh with your number one. Well, let's talk about your list then. Uh, you know, kind of where did you maybe struggle a little bit? Where were uh where were some of the teams that you were trying to fit in, and you know, well, what, what down, was your thought process as you were doing your rankings down toward the bottom? You know, it got a little bit difficult to determine who should be seated where, so forth, so on, and of course, my my media coverage, so football, basketball, and baseball oriented. But, you know, you, you, you follow golf. You know what's going on with golf. Uh, Brenda Gray in her volleyball program, um, the softball program, 
uh, from time to time has been uh, very good. And it's you go back in your mind, and as older the older I get, it's harder to remember sometimes. Had to look up a few things, you know, and uh, didn't want to leave anybody out that should have been on there. But um, it's just it's just the passage of time that makes the struggle real. Mm-hmm. You know, when you it's funny when you look at it and you kind of see how how things are going to pair up. You know, when you look at the bracket and uh, and how you're going to match things up. Did you uh, did you pair yours up by thinking okay a five twelve matchup? No, and, no, and, I just and look at who would face off against no. each other, or did you just go kind of one through sixteen? One through sixteen. Um, you know, because it's funny when you when you look at the bracket and you kind of see you know how how everything goes, but you've got a six eleven matchup. You've got the 2003 men's basketball team as a six seed. The 11 seed is the 2000 men's basketball team. So you're kind of pairing up basketball and basketball against each other in that one. And, uh, you know. No, I didn't, even, I didn't even give that any thought at all. So when you look at the voting and you look at stuff like that, say let's let's say the 2003 and the 2000 kind of head-to-head, uh, what do you think kind of takes the precedent there? Is it because 2003 won the conference tournament that year and got into the NCAAs? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, that was um, that was the year they had to play Florida, right? Which they really got screwed by NCAA having to be sent to Tampa to play Florida, who was an, one of the ascending powers in the NCAA. Uh, they, you know, they ran over their head from the word go, but they still got there, and they they, they won the the won the tournament. They won the tournament here at. Johnson Coliseum, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had and the championship game against SFA at Johnson Coliseum. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I think that's that, that's why they're higher than the other one in 2000. And then, uh, you know, you talk about some of the other ones that you were kind of struggling with towards the bottom, but, um, you know, trying to separate some of the golf stuff out and some of the volleyball and softball and everything like that. And it's funny, you look at uh, – you know, 1993, you've got softball winning in NIT that year, and you've also got volleyball winning at SFA to get into the NCAA tournament for the first time. And I think one of the fun things about this, just putting all of this together, is getting to go back and seeing some of that early history because we've been so blessed with some great teams as of late to kind of go back and remember what we had back in the early to mid-'90s and stuff like that before we really got into this great period of athletics for the Bearcats. Well, the way I rank things, a lot of times what would make a difference for me is if it was the first time Sam Houston had been able to reach certain levels in these individual sports. I remember also, Jason, this was 10, 12 years ago maybe, I was in Bobby Williams' office doing an interview with him one time. And I and at that time Sam Houston was uh what what they won two uh commissioner cups in a row or three. And I one thing I brought up to him was, you know, there was a lot of the old timers were still around then. You know, we're losing more of them as we go on, but that's the inexorable march of time. And I said, you know, you talk to some of the old, old timers, the guys that not only played here, but have been uh, supporters and donors all this time. And they talk about the golden age of Sam Houston 
athletics way back whenever it was. And, and I said, but Bobby, I think with the things that are going on now, I think we're in the golden age. And he agreed because we had never had department-wide success like like Sam Houston was experiencing at that time. Yeah, and I think really, if you even go a little further, the last 10 years have just been incredible across the board for all sports. I mean, even as you know, late as last spring, nine conference championships. Sure. Yeah, last yeah, spring yeah, alone, yeah. it's just been you know this this boom of of success. And it's hard to it's hard to com- compare eras mm-hmm. because athletics has changed so much. Uh, the strength and conditioning now, the nutrition. You got to think about integration back in the the late sixties, early seventies. You know, back in the fifties, uh, you know, it was all white, and I I lived through a lot of that when I was in junior high and high school in Baytown. But but people these days that are younger than me, uh, younger than you. They really don't have any idea how different things became with certain aspects of how we view society. Mm-hmm. And Sam Houston went through that like everybody else did. Yeah. Looking at some of the older stuff that you had on your list, you had the, as far as championships go, you had the 1986 football. The first year as a Division One program winning the Gulf Star Um and there were a couple instances of the Bearcats having kind of immediate success when you look at what baseball did and going to the regional yeah. and beating Oklahoma. Um, well, the 86 football team, first year for Bauer Stadium, it was a Bearcat Stadium at the time. And um, I don't think anybody really expected that much success that year. I know nobody else in the Southland Conference expected Sam Houston to be that successful, but they were – and it was a great way to uh, christen the new stadium. We thought we were, you know, really up in the, the high stratosphere of FCS, 1AA, whatever. And uh, I know the the game in the playoffs, that was Arkansas State, wasn't it? Yeah. And they uh, handled Sam Houston pretty well. But the Bearcats got a taste of it. Mm-hmm. And we learned – how it worked, and uh, found out that you know having a home game first couple of su- couple of rounds really makes a difference sometimes. <laughs> so when you look at the rest of the bracket, you know we're broken up into the moments, achievements by players, games, and championships. And moments was kind of tough because you wanted to capture maybe kind of an overall type picture. And you know I think one of the things that we struggled with was especially like baseball that 2017 team. There were so many different things that you could have done in that. The the regional against Texas Tech and, you know, having to come out of the loser's bracket and several of those games were probably game-worthy. Then, obviously, the, the final of beating Texas Tech, going to the Super Regionals. But in all of that as well is you've got the press conference that Matt Deggs did after losing to Florida State 19 to nothing. And yeah, when he the, became a national yeah, name. Yeah, the viral sensation of, of that video – um, I, I think makes that whole really two to three week stretch um, probably the number one moment in that region. What do you think about that? I I had no problem with 2017 baseball in the super regional. That was a, it was a special year. Uh, 
Um, like you said, going up to Lubbock and those people up there were absolutely stunned that not only did they not win their own regional, but they lost it to Sam Houston. And then uh, the Bearcats got over to uh, Tallahassee and had the Seminoles on the ropes in that first game early. Yeah. And Seminoles were pretty good. And they weren't ready for what for what Sam Houston was bringing, yeah. just the style of offense. And, and the, second, the second game, it was a nine-hour rain delay. Yeah. You know, and it turned into a disaster. Still, you were there, you – you were there not only for the first time for Sam Houston, but the first time for anybody ever in the Southland Conference. Yeah. Well, one of our other moments, it, it's actually the eighth seed in this bracket right now, but home football playoff success, and you kind of touched on that. Bearcats have never lost a home playoff game. And oh, they're 13-0 and now, and, uh, you know, it It becomes – it's to the point where it's become a thing, you know, that they've never lost a home game and, uh, you know, I, I think well, thanks to Josh McCown bringing them back from behind northern Arizona in overtime. That shootout of a game. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. that was a great one. The field goal at the end to, to win it. Um, I remember when Western Kentucky came in here. Western Kentucky was like seeded number four. They were the number three or four ranked yeah, team in the Sam, country Sam that Houston year. Sam was way on down. But you know how the NCAA is with bids and Sam Houston outbid them. And not only did Western Kentucky came in, come in here with a chip on their shoulder, they forgot to show up. Mm-hmm. And Sam Houston just ran all over. Got punched in the mouth early yep. with a couple of blocked punts, and that really, really yep. swung swung that game. Yep. The other, the other, our number two moment is, you know, normally you would think a national championship would be your number one, but obviously with everything that happened with baseball and the yep. Super Regionals, that was almost like winning a national championship for our level. Yeah. But you have bowling winning a national championship – and beating Nebraska, who had been the perennial kind of top dog in women's bowling, and to do it on ESPN was certainly one of the bigger moments as well. And you were there for that. I right? was. Where, where was that? Toronto? Not that one Toronto. was in Cleveland. Cleveland. It was they were on the Great Lakes. And I don't think that the folks, the, the supporters who follow Sam Houston sports were paying much attention to bowling at that time. And they go to the national championship – and all of a sudden, we just won a national title. Yeah, and yeah, you can ever, you can never discount that. You can't take anything away from that. So, it's. Yeah, I think being at number two is probably very, uh, very well deserved. And then our number three, and I, this is one that I really struggled with, and because honestly, we probably could do a whole bracket on Battle of the Piney Woods moments, <laughs> but. You know, we just, you know, it, it's when you sit down and you're like, you know, where do you put Johans Breeze punt return for a touchdown? Where do you put the Flanders flip? Briscoe seven touchdowns. Uh, winning nine straight Hurry. games at NRG. I mean, there are so many Battle of the Piney Woods moments. We, we could do a whole bracket. We could probably the do a whole. before and yes. after that rainy game up in Nacogdoches. We, we could do a time. whole region. So they're all kind of lumped in together as the three seed here in this moment. And probably you could make a case for that being number one when you look at everything included in there. But, you know, so many great things that have happened with the Battle of the Piney Woods and kind of putting all that into that one moment. The one I do want to talk to you about, though, and uh, we actually had quite a bit of debate, was our 10-seeded uh, football playing after Hurricane Harvey. And just 
what that whole moment was like because of all the hype around that game with Richmond that was supposed to be here. It was going to be nationally televised on ESPNU. And then that game getting moved to Waco and, uh, you know, happening in a, a week later. But just when you look out and you see 8,000 people that traveled to Waco to still watch that game and just what playing football again after Harvey, which, you know, here we are in a moment right now with no sports. And, you know, from the time the game was supposed to happen to when it actually happened was five days, and it felt like a month. Yeah. Well, here and we I are. Th- I, th- I, thought, I thought that the game would never be played. Exactly. And, um, you know, so the game was played, and I think it meant a lot to a lot of people that it was played. And just kind of what are your – What's what's your recollection? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, one thing, one, one, <laughs> one thing I can't get past on that one. That at the radio station we had a brand new setup uh, mixer, every everything, and, and it's like first game doing that. And we were planning to have a run through, but Harvey took that away from us. Mm-hmm. And it was also the first game without Leroy Wilkinson. He had he had retired, so we had new people on the staff. And you're in a strange press box, and you and you haven't really had the opportunity to prepare for the broadcast like you do for other games because everything was set up so quickly. Because in our minds, we we thought that was just. It just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And I think it helped get everybody's mind off of Harvey because Harvey was a big deal. I mean, my wife and I sat on our back porch and watched it rain 30 inches in three days. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know? And thank, uh, uh, thankfully for the folks at Baylor who made that, that possible, I think it was it was a bigger deal than a lot of people will ever know about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we've uh, actually gone over the time that I had allotted for. So there's a ton to talk about. It's going to be interesting to see how everything breaks out with the fan voting. And uh, we'll try to get together and uh, let's talk about this next week once we see how the the Sweet 16 is set up and maybe talk about maybe some surprises we might have seen with the way the fans – whether they or not they agreed with uh, the rankings we have. So all right. uh, appreciate you coming in, and uh, look forward to seeing how all this shakes out. Okay, thanks, Jason. All right, appreciate it. Season tickets for the 2020 football season are on sale now. Secure your seats today and ensure you have the best view as the Cats look to claim a Southland Conference title. The Bearcats will play five games at Bauer Stadium this season, and as always, your season ticket will guarantee your spot at the Battle of the Piney Woods. You won't want to miss the action at NRG Stadium as the Bearcats look to make it 10 straight wins over SFA. To purchase your tickets, log on to gobearcats.com slash tickets or call the Athletic Ticket Office at 936-294-1729 and we will see you at Bowers Stadium this fall. Eat them up, cats! And welcome back to Chasing the Cup, joined now by Brian Lacey. Uh, a little background on Brian. He was involved in Bearcat Athletics basically going back since 1995 when he was a freshman at Sam Houston, uh, multiple jobs working within the Houstonian, the Sports Information Office, and of course went on to the Huntsville Item, so working as a sports editor there, and uh, ultimately 
moving on as the managing editor. So, Brian, welcome aboard. Um, we don't have a whole lot going on, so let's uh, let's talk what's happened in the past. Let's talk some Bearcat sports. Yeah, how crazy is that to think, Jason? That uh, it's been 25 years now since uh, you and I first crossed paths and started uh, hanging out and uh, uh, lifelong friendship basically based around Bearcat athletics. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's been wild. And um, so in our breakdown of the top, uh, what ended up being 68 uh, moments, games, player achievements, uh, and championships, you had the games bracket. And uh, before we get into, uh, into the games and the process that you went through, uh, let's just talk about just you personally and your experiences with Sam Houston and what's your biggest memory? What when you look back at your twenty five years of Sam Houston athletics, what what really stands out the most to you? Well, I think the the biggest thing is uh, we, we've talked about this some um, when you look at the kids that are in in school today uh, and where Sam Houston State athletics is now uh, and the success uh, that this program has regularly across all sports. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's hard for, again, these kids weren't even born 25 years ago to remember uh, that it, it hasn't always been that great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and and this athletic department and the student athletes here, uh, the, the, the success that they have had over the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years or so, maybe 20 years, uh, uh, it really, you know, you try to avoid that recency bias when you're doing a, a project like this, but you realize that, really probably you know we, we are in or have been living through really the golden age of sam houston state athletics um and that's that's why so many of these things when you talk about doing all-time lists um really have taken place just in the last couple decades um and yeah for me um you know i'm i'm probably at heart uh i'm a basketball guy um and that's what I have enjoyed following the most. Um, and even though when I first started, I was the beat writer for both football and basketball back in the late 90s. Um, uh, you know, being there, I guess I took over as the beat writer at the Huntsville item in the 99-2000 season, which was the second year that Bob Marlin and his staff were there. And, of course, um, to, to just kind of follow that process, um, and see them go from, you know, what was just a, a really difficult uh, program as, as a Division One team um, and to immediately in that second year to win the conference and and sort of make basketball a fun thing on campus and, and really have the, even just the first taste of March Madness uh, come to Huntsville uh, and then come up short. Uh, and have that, you know, gut-wrenching feeling, and then to build it back. And by 2000, the 2002-2003 season, uh, you were the beat writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had transitioned and was doing radio, color commentary, and got to go to just about every game that year. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, to me, that is the pinnacle moment um, for me, is that uh, 2003 Southland Conference Championship game against Stephen F. Austin in Johnson Coliseum. Um you know, I'm really I just sitting there talking about it. I'm getting a little bit of chills just remembering that day. Just uh, the the crowd and the game and the, the game itself was just, you know, a phenomenal, you know, nail biter. Um, and, and to see that, you know, that, that moment that all of us who are sports fans have watched for so many years, uh, 
the mid-major school storming the court and celebrating going to the NCAA tournament and to to have a front row seat to watching that happen at Sam Houston for the very first time uh, probably is my favorite memory. Uh, and then just the following week, um, you know, we traveled together and went down to Florida and, and, and you know, uh, just, just to get that uh, NCAA tournament experience. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the game against Florida, you know, didn't go – great and we didn't get to pull the great cinderella upset uh but just getting to experience all of that uh kind of as a part of my alma mater uh is probably my favorite same houston athletic memory when you sat down and started putting your list together and kind of ordering everything and i had kind of given you a base of games to choose from but certainly said you know dig in and find some others how how what was it like as you were digging through the games and, and then remembering, oh, my goodness, we didn't think about this one, and what about this game, and and, right? and, start, and start building that list, and all of a sudden you're sitting there looking at 28 games, and we're trying to pare it down to 16. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, right off the bat, I think there's two, at least to me, that will jump out to people uh, that we didn't have, but that's because they, they, they have a place in the bracket that you've put together. Uh, and that is that 2003 basketball championship game. Probably, if if we were doing just games and nothing else, um, that's probably going to be the two seed. And and I mean, you're putting that right there to me with with what is our number one seed, the the, the semifinal 2011 football game against Montana. Um, but then that 2007 Oxford Regional baseball game against Southern Miss. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just uh, again. By that time, I had moved away from from Huntsville uh, and was living in Alabama. But Oxford is less than three hours from my home, so I drove over that weekend and met you and uh, got to be there on that Sunday. Uh, and just what a phenomenal game that was! Um, so so much fun, uh, and there's so many things about that that we could talk about. But uh, t- to me, that's probably a, a top five. So that's two right there that we didn't have. So we had to to pair those out. Um, but gosh, you think about it. I mean, we're talking the Division One era of Sam Houston, so about thirty years. I mean, you're you're talking close to two thousand baseball games, two thousand softball games. Basketball is going to be in the upwards of a thousand games. Uh, you know, there's so many possibilities. We talked the other night about the, I mean, how many weekday baseball games with those uh, Coach Skeeter's teams there at Holloman Field that you and I watched against some really, really good Rice and Texas A&M teams, College World Series teams um, that Sam Houston played against uh, during an era of baseball that wasn't stellar for us, um, not compared to by the, the recent standards that baseball has been at, uh, but but playing against guys like Lance Berkman and, you know, Jose Cruz Jr. And, and just some of those teams, you know, guys that were on those teams, it's really hard to get down to 16 yeah. games and not feel like you're missing something. Where do you, where do you rank a Ryan Ross block three-run homer to beat the Aggies in the bottom of the ninth at Holloman in a year that probably ended up with about 16 wins? I mean, that's, that, that's right. the hard part about this. Yeah, uh, and, and then certainly – um, I think when you start ranking them, you, you have to look at that. Okay, how do I compare, again, the, the, you know, the, the Tuesday midweek baseball game against Texas A&M that in that moment was exciting? How does that compare uh, to, again, say a regular season basketball game that was part of a championship season? So the implications of that game um, were, were far greater. 
and, and I think that adds some some weight to it. And so um, that was that was really kind of I think a driving force in terms of how we looked at some of those rankings and some of the things that got on the list was was where did it you know what was what was the bigger picture implication of that beyond just that day and that competition? What did it really mean? Okay, well, let's start with your first four outs and uh, the games that didn't quite make your list. You you listed out 1998 basketball win at U of H, and you know that's one that I think a lot of people really think about much, but um, certainly significant in terms of uh, in the moment the win for that team and then what it ultimately led to in terms of building blocks towards that 2000 conference championship. Sure. Um, so 98 basketball, that is Bob Marlin's first season at Sam Houston. And, uh, you know, going back over Sam Houston's tenure, what the previous decade or so as a division one program had, I think one 10 win season, um, you know, basketball was just not, uh, very good. Um, and, and people didn't have, I don't think people had very high expectations for basketball. And so here we go. We're going to play Houston. And again, this is 98 University of Houston, not Houston in a payday. But for, for, for guys of, you know, our era that grew up in the 80s, when, when you still, when you think of the University of Houston basketball, you're talking the Five Slamma Jamma, Clyde Drexler, Kim Olajuwon, Michael Young, Kellen Winslow, that whole crew that was multiple Final Fours, you know, just missed the national championship and, and one of the greatest upsets in NCAA history. That's, that is what University of Houston basketball will sort of always be in my mind. And that hype uh, was around this Houston team because Clyde Drexler had just come back to coach. Right. Uh, Clyde Drexler was in his first year as a head coach. Uh, they had played Texas in their first game and won um and so there was a lot of buzz and 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 i don't think anybody around sam houston really thought much about the fact we were doing it and all of a sudden this first year head coach uh takes his team down to houston and beats u of h uh, a week after they had beaten uh texas and again uh that was not a good u of h team um i think they finished i looked it up 10 and 17 that year for sam houston we were 10 and 16 that year but that was the first 10 win season as a division one program and so i think that night in hindsight for a lot of folks kind of maybe was a signal that oh we might actually have a a, a decent basketball team going forward or maybe we've got a coach that can uh really build this program uh into what we've seen it become over the last 20 years. So that one just missed out again, because it still wasn't a great season and it wasn't a, a great opponent, but still uh, beating Houston in college basketball, uh, certainly for, for folks at a certain age is, is a, is a big deal. It was significant. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, I think really opened some eyes probably around the, the Sam Houston community, if not the, the rest of the, the college athletics world. Well, who else did you um, have on your, your first four out? So my next one I had was the 2007 football season. If you remember, ended on a Thursday night in San Marcos with a 29-28 win over Texas State. Uh, that was a game Sam Houston trailed 28-10 to going into the fourth quarter and um, scored three touchdowns there in the fourth quarter. The first two touchdown drives were both set up by interceptions. Um uh, and actually kind of a crazy sequence, if you remember, Jason, we scored with like five minutes left to make it 28-22. Uh, 
And then I think both teams traded punts. There was three, like, three and out possessions. And Sam Houston got the ball back with about two and a half minutes left, and Brett Hicks let a drive down the field, uh, got inside the 10-yard line with about 25 seconds left, got it down to the five, and then had an incomplete pass, incomplete pass, and on fourth and five with five seconds left, uh, hit Chris Lucas on a quick little crossing route for a touchdown. Um, and, you know, that was not a uh, – again, that was not a great season, but um, – Anytime, I think maybe some of folks now, it's, it's scary to realize we've gone almost a decade since we've played Texas State, which used to be on par with Stephen F. Austin in terms of our rivals. Some people would football. tell you more so. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I, I think maybe, you know, there's another game that we'll talk about uh, later on against Texas State. But, you know, we were in that window. You'll remember that by that point, Texas State had started making some public statements about uh, kind of feeling like that the, they were too good for the Southland. Yeah, they, they had made their playoff run two years earlier in 2005 yeah. with Barrick Neely and got to the semifinals, and that chatter had and, started. And so, yeah, I think you know, especially within the schools and within the athletic departments, there was some real dislike. Uh, so winning a game like that um, and that season um, – Maybe on some levels was was kind of indicative of that entire uh, you know Todd Witten era that was just kind of a, a frustrating few years where you, you you saw so much potential and things didn't quite pan out and you know I think we, we uh, won almost all of the games that you would say we were favored in but lost almost all of the games that we would have been considered underdogs and to to just finish a season like that um, you know kind of similar. Uh, Certainly the stakes weren't near as high, not near as dramatic, but, you know, to that Eastern Washington game from the playoffs in 2004, mm-hmm. uh, where you're you're down by three – you're down three scores into the fourth quarter. Um, and to be able to come back uh, and pull that game out um, was, I think, just a, a – a, I was really happy. I remember being at that time really happy for those – that group of seniors. Um, knowing that you know that wasn't going to be a playoff season or anything, and and to finish off the year that way, and anytime you could beat Texas State, uh, especially in San Marcos, but to do it in that kind of dramatic fashion was was a really really fun night. And if you weren't there, a lot of people didn't see that because good portions of that game. Because I don't know if you remember, but that was a Fox Sports Southwest broadcast, mm-hmm. and their production truck caught on fire. And there was a, it caused a power outage, and I believe programming went to bass fishing. And so there were a lot of people who missed a good chunk of that game. And once the broadcast came back in the fourth quarter, there were a lot of people who didn't know and never came back to it. So unless you were in the stadium, you might not have seen the end of that game. Yeah, and that was actually a, uh, if you remember, Jason, that's a fun couple of days because that was a Thursday night, and the night before on Wednesday uh, was another game that I believe is in your bracket somewhere uh, when the basketball team hosted Texas Tech and Bobby Knight and Johnson Coliseum and had gotten a one. So that was that was all within a 24-hour period, um, a Wednesday night followed by a Thursday night football game that was on the road. So, yeah, yeah uh, definitely a, a, fun, a fun week there uh, in, in Sam Houston sports. All right, so who else? What are your other two that you're on your first four? So the other two, um, and this was one I actually didn't know, but 
so I'm going to, I'm going to defer to you a little bit, but I think it was big enough. There were 1987, which was Sam Houston's first year as a division one program in baseball, um, coming off of being a, you know, very successful, um, you know, smaller division program and makes the NCAA regionals. And I believe was in Norman. Is that correct? Um, and played Oklahoma. It was Austin. In Austin and played Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and and got a win there, um, and really, you know, our our first taste of baseball tournament success. Um, and we've certainly seen over the years. I think, you know, out of all the sports, um, and, and I think this is even bared out. You know, Fresno State won a College World Series uh, about ten years ago, uh, and they were a you know a regional four seed in this current sort of sixteen team regional. You know format that they go to um they managed to go through and, and win the college world series uh and, and i think we've seen again we talked about the the rices and the texas the texas a&m sam houston has a lot of wins over the years against you know big 12 and sec programs um baseball is probably out of the three major sports the one that sam houston has the most realistic chance of of getting to a national championship of getting to omaha um, I, I don't think that's, you know, a completely unrealistic dream for anybody that's involved with Sam Houston to, to, to say that's the goal for the baseball program. So uh, when you can have that first year of being a part of the NCAA tournament and go to Austin uh, and again, remembering what Texas baseball was back in that era um, and, and to go play Oklahoma uh, and, and get a win, uh, I think probably kind of uh, did a little bit of just sort of setting the standard for what could be expected from uh, the same Houston baseball program. All right, and what's your and last one? And then the last one, uh, a little bit of a random one, but uh, 2016 Southland Conference Tournament down in Katy, uh, basketball team quarterfinal game against Nichols State. Uh, if you'll remember, 60 to 59, uh, got the victory over Nichols. Dakari Henderson uh, with the buzzer beater layup and a, a wild sequence that involved. Um, Sam Houston scoring with about 17 seconds left to take a lead. Nichols came down and they hit a corner three with like seven seconds left to go up by one. And basically we inbound the ball. Dakari races down court, gets off a floater before the buzzer and it drops. Um, If that had propelled that 2016 team into something, uh, but I think they expended so much energy that night, they ended up on the short end of a buzzer beater to, I believe, Corpus Christi the very next night. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, still a, a great game and worthy of consideration. And in that moment, uh, you know, a really fun sort of March Madness moment uh, that probably gets a little overshadowed because they weren't able to carry that on to a tournament championship. Um, but the, those are my first four uh, out. Um, and then let me just – I want to mention two, Jason, just quickly. We didn't include – I know they're in other places um, that could have been considered on this list. 2009-2010 uh, basketball season, which is its own championship season. Um, they went down in, I think, November and played Auburn and just absolutely destroyed Auburn. 107-89, uh, to 89, and that 18-point deficit was maybe as close as the game got at any point in the second half. Um, and it was probably, in my opinion, the, the single most impressive win for any Sam Houston team against a Power 5 conference opponent in any sport. Um, just total domination that day. And then you, I, I know you remember, because um, I don't think you had any fingernails left, the semifinal game from that year's tournament. Um, 
88-85 against Southeastern. Um, and we were down – I forgot to tell you this the other night. We were down five with three minutes to play. Um, you had Lance Peavy House hit a big three to give us a lead, and then actually Southeastern tied it, and Justin Crow hit a layup with about 11 seconds left to take the lead for good. Um, and that was a game that propelled Sam Houston to a championship and an NCAA tournament berth. Um, but, yeah, a lot of really fun basketball games over the last, uh, you know, 20 years. I was a absolute miserable wreck during that game. You talk about no fingernails. I'm not sure I had a whole lot of hair left after that one, and I don't think there were any contents left in my stomach after that one either. Didn't you watch most of that game from, like, the upper reaches of the arena, like standing up on the concourse or something? You know, it was pre-Apple Watch days and stuff, but I would be willing to bet I paced about seven miles during that game. I just watched. I walked the upper concourse just laps as the game was going. And, uh, and yeah, I ended up in the final moments of the game uh, up in the top row leaning on a railing watching the end of that game. <laughs> I needed to be away from everybody, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was for the best. I, I think I still have some pictures that were taken of me when I was up in the upper deck. So, yeah, that was uh, – that game – was you know it probably is worthy of being on the list but you know i think we've got a good list of 16 and we can talk about why they're there so let's start um i I think one two three are probably an easy one two three um football semifinal win over montana 2004 eastern washington the comeback being down 34 14 in the fourth quarter And then the 1996 baseball regional beating Miami in the first round. Um, You went one, two, three there. Talk to me about uh, what what separated each from the other. Well, I think the 2011 uh, Montana semifinal game at home, uh, just not only the culmination of, you know, arguably the greatest season uh, in any sport by any Sam Houston team, um, but, but, you know, it was so fitting, Jason, that it was Montana that we had to play in that game. Absolutely. Um, even even though we, we look at it now, and North Dakota State is obviously the gold standard in FCS football. But at that time, uh, you know, really through uh, the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, Montana had been that team that kind of everybody in the country was comparing themselves to. Uh, they were the team that had beaten us in both 2001 and 2004. Um, in the playoffs, so uh, it was. It, it had to be Montana. That's who we were going to have to beat to get to that ultimate goal of making the national championship game. Uh, and, and I just remember uh, again being one of those weird games where you know we were playing really well and we were we were ahead and we were in control, but you never felt like it was over. And then Montana started to make some plays there in the second half. And and, and you find yourself having to be in that one possession game late in the game. And you've got to make you know the decision uh, to go for it on fourth down. Um, and just everything about that night and that atmosphere and what that victory meant in terms of reaching the national championship, which, which I, I know we know Bobby Williams, is a, a football guy through and through. Uh, and, and as much as he loves all of Sam Houston's teams and loves their success, um, you know, football football means more. And that's, that's okay to say. 
Um, and, and so for, for that to be the, the, the culmination of, of his work, you know, um, and, and as the AD of the program, I, I always know that night was special. Um, when I told him we were doing this project and I was talking to him the other day about just what we're going to be doing during this time of no sports. And I explained to him what we were doing. The only thing he said was Montana better be number one. However you do your brackets, <laughs> Montana better be the number one, number one seed. Well, good. So good. Bobby, when you listen to this, you know, I, I know how much it meant to you uh, and, and the work that you've put in over the years building Sam Houston. Uh, and that that night uh, was an incredibly special night. Uh, and, and then to finish is, you know, again, it would have been incredible, Jason, if we'd have won that game, you know, you know, by three touchdowns. Um, but to have it play out the way it did, um, and and not only that, to to have uh, Tim Flanders have the night that he did, um, and, and and I'll still remember even within all that. I mean, he's got a 300 yard game in his reach. All he has to do is finish the run to the end zone, and he chooses to slide down, knowing that that ends the game after yep. he's picked up the first down. Um, uh, yeah, just an awesome night. So uh, so that was a clear number one. Uh, number two. Uh, the 2004 Eastern Washington comeback, uh, uh, another game that you did not fare well in personally. Um, and I was not there, but I was watching on television and seeing you on the sidelines through a, a mostly frozen, miserable night. Um, it was. And, and, and here's one of those things, again, I think this is what, it, when we were down, one of the things that made it even worse was thinking back to three weeks earlier that team had gone and lost the game at Northwestern State. Um, it, it just didn't play well that night, did they? Just no. just had a bad night on the road. Didn't play well. Some un, un, you know unusual turnovers, and and you know at that point, if we win that game, we're probably home for the entire playoff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, seating so was not seating only, was done a little bit differently back then, but right. yeah, I think. I think we're still probably looking at a top four, top four seed, and at least home into the semifinals. And it's so you've got that floating through the back of your head while you're freezing, watching your team get kicked up and down the field, uh, and then you know you just you just give the guys credit they didn't they just didn't quit they just kept playing. Um, I, I don't know. You know, I'd have to go back and watch it. I don't remember that Eastern really – they didn't really drop into a prevent or do anything really silly. Stupid. We just started making some plays and hit a couple big ones, uh, got ourselves back into it. And and then obviously, you know, the I, I think you can take that sequence from the blocked field goal setting up the final drive, and you could make an argument that that drive is one of the top five moments uh, in Sam Houston history. No doubt. Um um, just just that final you know drive of the game, um, and and I remember you know uh, I remember being there in Huntsville watching the game on TV, uh, and just that surreal feeling like as the game was ending and opening the door and like just hearing horns honking all over town and that that type of stuff doesn't happen in Huntsville and certainly not over a football game. I, I think uh, that's one of my favorite. I think that's one of my favorite parts about this was getting home. And hearing the stories of of people driving around town, whether they were listening to the broadcast on the radio or where they were watching the game, and then just pouring out all at the same time out of their apartments just to see 
if anybody else had just shared that same moment that they did right. and and to see right. strangers that they don't know and you know why the guy across the apartment complex from you is walking outside right now because he just saw what you saw and I think that's one of my favorite things about that is hearing what the reaction was like in Huntsville yeah just a, a, a phenomenal moment uh and again when you talk about that drive um you know, we, we jokingly watched them. I, mean, I, I think after they picked up that first first down where you had to convert a fourth down, mm-hmm. um, and then we were down to like 40 seconds yeah, uh, at tight. that point, and we still were not across midfield, and basically ran the exact same play five times in a row down the sideline, and Eastern did not make the adjustment. Nope. Uh, I don't even think Dustin Long looked anywhere other than Messina on every single one of those plays, and they perfect throws, perfect sideline tightrope catches. If anything does not go right in that sequence, we don't win that game. Yeah. Everything Um, had to be perfect. I remember talking to Coach Randleman about that a few years ago, and he just sat there and he goes, you know, at some point you might want to think about putting somebody on Mathena. (laughs) He goes, but they didn't. They didn't. Uh, It was was awesome. And, And and that's one of the, you know, there's a weird thing. Sometimes, you know, having a game be at home makes it more exciting. Uh, but when you have a comeback like that on the road, there's that added just the, the crowd shock, the stunned silence. Like you could, I remember hearing, you know, that sound, like the, the gasps of almost terror among the crowd. Like every time we completed a pass and they're, you know, they're thinking this can't be happening. This can't be happening. And uh, just, yeah, it just, just thinking about it now gets my heart racing a little bit. Just, just how intense that final sequence was. Um, so when we get to number three, uh, 96 baseball regional, um, uh, I will, I was not there that day. Um, I was. you were, I um, actually, I actually, I'm, I'm scanning through the list right now and looking at your, your 16 plus your play in. I think I'm at every single one of these games. Yeah. Um, and here's the thing, and this is something folks today may not realize is again, the NCAA tournament, um, you know, college world series. It was not in 1996. It was not what it is today. Yeah. Different especially format. Especially in everything. terms of uh, just, especially in the media coverage, um, you know, now not only on, on that opening weekend, regional weekend, I mean, there's games all over ESPN, ESPN two, you know, all over TV. You can stream every single one of the games back then. There wasn't anything televised until they got to Omaha. Yeah. Um, and for them to pull that level of upset um, against a, a Miami team that was, again, uh, arguably one of the best teams in the country. Um, Pat Burrell, and You know. Freshman uh, All-American. Alex Cora. That, yeah. That was a, that was the same Houston team that had been through some stuff that year. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I think Coach Skeeters, even near the end of the year, had gotten a little frustrated with the kids and, uh, and, and maybe even kind of just said, you know what, you guys just go play. Um, and, and for whatever reason, that worked, you know. Um, had had kind of just said, to heck with it, roll the balls out there and let the guys go. And, and, and I don't know if they just relaxed and decided to have fun or what, because that was a pretty remarkable run they made through the tournament. Yeah, they the went 4-0 in the Southland tournament. I think they entered the Southland tournament – 26 and 30 overall on yeah. the season and then went four and oh in the southland tournament to to get a 500 record to enter the ncaa tournament 
but yes, that was a uh, that was again, and part of the reason that ranks so high is uh, even though again and came really close the next two days against UCLA and Texas had had leads in the late innings of both of those games. I think led both of them in the eighth. Yeah, um, been a lot more, but still. Uh, you know, I don't know that a lot of, again, because the media coverage wasn't the same, a lot of people may not be as familiar with that, but it is still probably one of the biggest uh, college baseball upsets in, in college World Series, uh, you know, tournament history. Uh, so it definitely falls into that top four and the, uh, and category this is, for me. And this is a Miami team that went on to, they were famously on the losing end of one of the best championship games in history to LSU when Warren Morris hit the walk-off home run to beat Miami in the national championship game. So this is a Miami team that kind of bookended that tournament with a loss to Sam Houston and then a loss to LSU in the national championship game. Yeah, and if I'm, I'd have to look at They may not have lost in between. No, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't lose again in Austin because they, they came back from the loser's bracket. And then, of course, back then they didn't do the best of three championship series yeah. in the College World Series. Just you, you – and once you got down to two teams, regardless of who was from the winner's bracket or the loser's bracket, you had the single-game Saturday championship game. So, yeah, they had probably strung together eight or nine straight wins after that until losing on the uh, yeah the walk-off to LSU. Great game. All right. Uh, so, number four. That was an uh, easy top three. So, now we kind of start getting into the decision-making. So, talk. let's go four. Yeah, a couple of different ones here. So, four, we went with the 2001, the playoff win against Northern Arizona at home. And that was partially because that was the first playoff win um, at the the 1AA FCS level. Um, A phenomenal season. Um, Josh McCown is their quarterback. Uh, Keith Heinrich, Keith Davis, a lot of of really good guys who are, you know, Hall of Honor inductees now. that game was just – not only was it close, and I think that was part of it too. That was for a lot of people in St. Houston. That was your first taste of playoff football, something that that 2000 team maybe underachieved a little but we knew was really talented. Um, and then you brought in Josh McCown, and that was really, I think, the, the piece that put that team over the top, not just uh, the combination of both his skill uh, and his leadership. Um and man, that was a, a just another one of those games back and forth. You know, I, I think everybody felt confident because we were the home team and we thought we were going to be good. And then you realize, oh wait, this Northern Arizona team is really good as well. Yeah. Uh, and and they scored late to tie the game, and it's looking for all the world like we're going to overtime. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember how much time was left when we got the ball back, uh, but uh, I, I just remember, you know. First or second play of that drive, Josh kind of is just looking for something, rolls out of the pocket, and uh, Matt Buss had the good sense just to not stop running and just kept running, and Josh looked up and just heaves one as far as he can, and Matt pulls it in, and next thing we know, we're lining up to kick a field goal as time expires. Alex St. Peter, 20-yard field goal. Yeah, as like I said, as, as the beat writer, and I'm there watching it, and I'm taking notes, and I'm thinking about you know what I'm writing, I had like – mentally started to prepare myself for overtime mm-hmm. uh i just you know we had the field to drive i don't remember if we had timeouts or not but it was uh you know just just an amazing moment as well there the end of that game um and, and to pull that out uh for the first playoff win in school history and i think that's that's what really bumps it up there that first playoff win uh is what elevates it 
um, because that kind of sets the table in terms of that season. You know, that's 2001, where we're at the start of a new century, and that kind of – It had been 10 years the, since the Bearcats had been in the playoffs. Right. Um, and, and, yeah, there was some up and down in between, but I think that kind of set the tone for, 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 for this new – the 21st century of, of Sam Houston football, of, of what the expectations were going to be. So, um, number five – now, this is, where, this is a tricky one. Um, I put the 2014 Fort Worth Regional – Three to two loss against TCU, famously in twenty-two innings. Um, it's it's tough when you're sitting there, you're doing a you know Sam Houston's all-time greatest games. It's going to have to be a pretty spectacular game to be one that you lost and still make that list. It's certainly uh, memorable, that's that for sure. It is absolutely memorable on on a number of levels. Um, you know, first of all, it was really pretty. For both teams, I mean that's TCU that's a national seed, um, ended up hosting a super regional and going to Omaha, um, and that was high level baseball. Um, here's the crazy thing: I didn't know this, Jason. I looked at the I looked up the entire bracket that last night. That that Fort Worth regional, TCU beat Siena two to one in eleven innings in the very first game. Mm-hmm. Sam Houston turns around and beats Dallas Baptist two to one. That finishes your first day. Then in the elimination game, Dallas Baptist loses, is upset by the four seed Siena nine to eight. And then in twenty two innings, you have a three to two game. So every single game the first two days of that regional was a one run game with multiple extra inning games. Really, really close. Um you had what, seventeenth uh, or eighteenth inning? We have the winning run come to the plate and get thrown out at mm-hmm. home. Yeah, six. I think it was the sixteenth, but okay. Most of that night's now a blur. <laughs> uh, and then obviously, um, you know, again, we'll speak clearly from a Sam Houston perspective. In the bottom of the twenty-first, we were robbed of the game. Absolutely. Um, the winning run scores and a totally bogus interference call, and and the only the only credit I will give is to. TCU's shortstop for selling it because clearly that was something they had worked on all season was basically flopping on any play at second base to try and to then, get the interference ball. And just spiked the throw into the dirt. There was no right. attempt to throw the ball to first. No. I mean, and again, in hindsight, I will give the kid tip of the cat credit. It was brilliant because that was the only chance they had. If, if he legitimately jumps and tries to make the play to get out of the way, like most players are taught, not a chance in the world that, the, that they get to be out and the run scores and the game's over. Um, which consequently um, leads to one of my probably sort of, you know, favorite never talked about moments is the fact that uh, Coach Degg used that opportunity to then, was, was it the very next year in Lafayette? Two when years he later. Got a pound, two years later. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the same official um, on, on a not nearly as egregious call, but, but uh, uh, Coach Deggs went and got himself run out of that regional game, really just as a, as a tribute to the guys from that team two years earlier. Um, he, he knew what that meant to them. Yeah, and that's what he, he said it in the press conference. He talked about that um, that, that, was a, that was a nod to those 2014 guys that, you know, obviously he wasn't here for it, but he had heard that story over and over and over. And I, I think that's yeah. why when you look at it, I was curious to see. I gave you one. I gave you that game to choose from. I was curious to see where you were going to put it because um, it's one that I've kind of struggled with just – 
speaking historically about uh, Sam Houston baseball and stuff like that, where where do you put a loss? But, you know, I was on the broadcast for that, and um, you know, it was funny because I had been calling the game with Cooter, and um, I took the first and th- through the third innings. He took four through six, and then I took the seven through nine. And when the game went to extra innings, I just looked at him and I said, hey, I'll just take it the rest of the way, thinking, you know, the rest of the way might be an inning or two. Right. Uh, not realizing I was about to lock in for play-by-play for, you know, another, what, 12 innings after that. So, you know, that was – yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. Uh, again, it's, it's kind of like the other – the Miami win in baseball that, that – uh, it, it's arguably one of the greatest NCAA baseball tournament games ever. And th- even though we ended up on the losing end, uh, when, anytime you participate in a NCAA event that goes down as one of the greatest ever – um, I think it has to be recognized on a list like this. You know, and um, ESPN's broadcast window closed. Um, I think about the 14th, 15th inning, um, ES, the game was on ESPN3, and they had used up their allotted amount of time for that. And the stream just stopped for like an inning or two. Um, TCU was charging for their audio broadcast, so our audio broadcast was free. So we're just all of a sudden – we're the only broadcast in the nation at that point to be able to listen to the game. And every other game in the country is done at that point. We are the last game going and everybody started listening to, uh, to our broadcast. Uh, my brother was uh, going through Twitter and I think he was screenshotting all the tweets about the broadcast from people across the country and, uh, and sending them to me. Um, people talking about how much of a homer this guy is and, and all that kind of good stuff. But, uh, yeah, there. And we're talking. That was almost four a.m. before that game ended. Uh, no, I, I think it ended. It ended around. I want to say two thirty, close to three o'clock. It was a. Uh, it Maybe was, it was four o'clock before my blood pressure came down and I was probably, finally able to go to sleep. I think my head hit the pillow about five in the morning. Um, but, and then just as a side note, let's give that team credit too. Had to be up the very next day, like six hours later and come back and play a game and won yeah, beats, against Siena. Beat Siena the next day. I mean, you look at that stretch. They played, I want to say it was 40 innings of baseball over a 27-hour stretch. Unreal. You, you beat Unreal. Siena, then you got to turn around and you play TCU again. Had to play them in the in the championship game, yeah. So you play, you play 18 innings that day after just playing 22 innings the night before. So, yeah, that was – I. I don't disagree. I, I think five is probably a good place to put it. I was curious to see what you were going to do with it. Yeah. Um, six, uh, the 2000 Southland Conference Basketball Tournament. Uh, very first game. That is that is Bob Marlin's second year. They win the conference. Um, and the first round games are at home school, post school sites. So top seeded Sam Houston is hosting number eight Nichols, who Sam Houston beat fairly easily in both regular season games. Uh, and, and really, to me, this goes there because this this was the first time. And Jason, we were there that night. Um, like I said, that that was the first time that really anybody at Sam Houston got to actually truly experience March Madness. Yep. Um, and you know, we had by, by that time. I don't know how many games, home games we had been to over the years, um, but you know, you had six, seven hundred people. You had a good crowd on a Thursday night. We were um, excited same about thing that for a Saturday. Yeah. Um, and, and 
I'm going to say, you know, realistically, there was probably, what, 3,500, 4,000 people there that night? I don't know if, it, um, if it's realistically that high. It probably but it, was, it probably felt like that. It was probably closer to about 2,500, though, it which was, felt I was like say, a I mean, sellout crowd at that, that point. Again, to us, again, yeah, a half-full arena at that yeah. point, compared to anything else, could be literally deafening. Um, and if you remember, early, before the game started, there was a little dust-up between the Nichols players and the student section that used to sit in the, you know, in the pull-out bleachers down in the corner. Just some little trash talking and, and you know. But, but and it, this, is, it, this is an eight-seeded Nichols team against the top-seeded Bearcats. Right. Uh, and so there's already a little bit of an energy in the building. People are fired up, and this little dust-up happens over in the corner. Uh, and so – the students, you know, that group of students that used to sit down in the front rows would talk a lot. Uh, and so they're fired up. The place is loud. The music's blaring. And I remember when our good buddy Ed Chattel, who was in charge of the Coliseum back then, um, I can't if it, it may, it was either The Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin's music is what he liked to play when the team took the floor. And when that, there was a, there was a glass shattering sound effect when the song first started that dropped and when that glass shattered that was the loudest i had ever heard that coliseum and as those guys ran out of the tunnel um it was i mean that that was it that was march madness had finally come to huntsville uh and then the game started and our guys were so freaking tight yeah they (laughs) they played maybe their worst game of the year um, the, the, just the, the pressure of being the number one seed and the expectations and everything, uh, and, and comes down to the very end and we are down one final possession and, uh, Boney Watson drives the lane and gets off a little underhand scoop shot, spins it off the glass and in with about what, four seconds left. And, uh, we race back and, and Nichols misses a desperation three, um, and gosh, just that, that whole sequence, that everything about that night, um, I, I think even though the game itself was not particularly a well-played game, uh, it, it takes a special place for me because it was that, that, you know, March Madness had finally arrived for the first time in school history. Uh, and to have a buzzer-beater game with that uh, made it a really special night. And I, I think if I remember correctly, too, we were the only home team to win in the first round. I think yes. five, six, and seven all pulled off road upsets. Yes, that is correct. Um, making making what happened in uh, Shreveport a couple of nights later even more painful um, <sighs> as we got upset. But uh, uh, that, that may be tough. maybe that's a, hey, that may be another podcast for another day of like you know worst you know like most broken hearted moments or you know just soul crushing defeats. Uh, unfortunately, like any school, we could probably come up with an entire bracket just for those. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, we may have enough time on our hands, so we'll see <laughs> See how the next few uh, months go. So number seven, uh, 1994 Alcorn state, Sam Houston football on the surface. Most people, you might shrug your shoulders and go, why is that a big game? But, uh, 1994, one, uh, Steve McNair had taken the college football world by storm. Uh, and Alcorn was coming to town for that game. And, and again, one of those things people forget, Jason, there was no ESPN plus back then. You got what, maybe, maybe three games on a Saturday on ESPN. Yeah, there weren't a whole lot. 
and the football you options had, were limited. You had maybe a you know the CBS game of the week, and ABC had a game, uh, and that was about what you got for college football viewing back then. And for ABC to choose Sam Houston and Alcorn State as one of its regional national games of the week was a huge deal. Um, now you tell me, we've had some big football games in the playoffs. Is that still the attendance record for Bauer Stadium? I think that number is still the biggest number that is uh, that is published. Um, there's, of course, you know, varying reports of how many people were in attendance, and attendance was kept a little bit different in 1994 than it was for the playoffs <laughs> in 2011. Um, I, I still think the 16,000 is probably the highest listed. And, uh, but you know, I, we have a picture in our office or had a picture in our office of an aerial shot of Bowers on that yeah. day and the line of people wrapping around the stadium to get in and the amount of people sitting on the grass berms. I mean, you know, you talk about Steve McNair and, um, you know, the hype that was around him at that time, that was also the same week that he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. So he was the SI cover boy. ABC came to town. Yeah, that that was a big one. Yeah, anytime a Sam Houston game in the 90s got run on SportsCenter, that, that's going to be a big deal because um, that just was not – I mean, that the, the one AA level was not getting any national coverage. And, and keep this in mind – he was a one double a quarterback who was in the running for the Heisman. Yeah. We're not talking Walter Payton award here. I mean, today, even right. The greatest season in FCS football history wouldn't even scratch the surface on the Heisman trophy. And here was Steve McNair in 1994 being talked about a potential Heisman candidate. And, throw in the fact that with all of those things that the event itself was massive um that Sam Houston went out and pretty easily put a beat down on Alcorn that day I mean McNair had a big statistical game as always but uh 45-23 I believe put a pretty uh, good pretty beat down on Air McNair as well I think he left yeah. the game injured um yeah bruised or fractured ribs if I remember correctly but yeah, uh, definitely a, 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 an incredible, a very memorable day in Sam Houston in history, and, and one that I think is worthy of this list. So uh, it drops in at number seven. Uh, number eight uh, went with one of the newer ones here. Uh, just this past season, 2019, uh, softball goes to Austin and beats number nine Texas in the Women's College World Series regional. Um, how many? How many NCAA was that? Was our second, second softball NCAA tournament win? Yes. Um, and and we had never gotten a first day win before. Nope. Um, so uh, and, and again, just with what Texas is in softball, I mean that's a perennial College World Series team. You know, a top ten team probably historically in women's college softball. Uh, and, and not only that, to win it the way we did, uh, you know, stayed in the game. Great pitching performance. Kept it close, you know, what, one down one nothing. Yeah. Uh, into the sixth, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then get the two run home run. Uh, and just absolutely stunned the home crowd there. Uh, and, and then, and still, yeah, I think the thing that I like about it better too is that it wasn't like it was just the miracle we got one lucky. We still had to go out and, and keep them off the board for two more innings. Yeah. 
um, and, and did it. Uh, and so I, I think NCAA tournament win, regardless of sport, carries some pretty heavy weight with it. Um, and so that's why I put that in my top eight. It's on the front half of the bracket. Um, but it sets up an intriguing 8-9 matchup. It does, um, because at 9, we went with the um, Minute Maid Classic. Uh, where were we? 2018. Uh, walk-off home run. Was that a ninth inning or extra inning? That was a 10th inning home run. 10th inning, that's what I thought. 10th inning walk-off home run against Vanderbilt in the Minute Maid Classic. and. And that's kind of, I think I put softball ahead there. Now, those are two kind of, you know, really dramatic, you know, baseball, softball, very similar walk-offs. But but I felt like the NCAA tournament for softball carries a little more weight uh, than a early season tournament. Although that, you know, that Minute Maid Classic has been a great tournament for, for Sam Houston. We've been in it because it's allowed our, our program to showcase itself against some of the premier teams in the country and prove um, that we are – every bit as good and able of competing at that level. Uh, and Vanderbilt the team has won what two national championships in the last six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and is again in the SEC, um, you know, the best probably top to bottom baseball conference along with the ACC in the country. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. But again, I put that as the eight, nine matchup just cause I'll, it's interesting to see how people will see that. But I, I thought that the softball, being in the NCAA tournament carries a little more weight. Um, so your seven ten matchup. We've already talked about seven seed at Alcorn State. Uh, so who's your ten seed? So the ten seed is the 2012 semifinal football win at Eastern Washington, um, which was an interesting game. Um, hard to you know. Vernon Adams comes off the bench for Eastern Washington, a true freshman at the time. Um, didn't really know what we were going up against, but, but you know, we go into halftime of that game thinking, hey, we're going back to Frisco. This thing's over. And this little kid comes out and just starts, like every single play, he's just throwing the ball 50 yards downfield and completing most of them. And all of a sudden, what we had a what, four touchdown lead. It was thirty-five nothing at the half. Okay, thirty-five. I couldn't remember if it was twenty-eight yeah. to thirty-five without looking at the box score, but yeah. Uh, and the next thing we know, we are in a dogfight with most of the fourth quarter to go. Yep. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna tell a little story here, and um, I am highly superstitious when it comes to sports. I always have been whether it was playing with 21 cents in my back pocket in baseball or (laughs) where I sit, I'm very superstitious, and you know this about me. And um, you've always known this about me. And so we're up 35 to nothing at the half, and you call me. I know. And I answer the phone, and you said, it's safe for me to go ahead and book my flight to Frisco, right? And I tried to remain calm and just said, you know, yeah, probably – but in the back of my mind, I'm like, I can't believe he just did this. Is he really <laughs> calling me right now at halftime and asking me if it's okay to book his flight? And then I, the very first touchdown that Eastern Washington scores, I knew. I knew at that moment that this game was about to turn into a dogfight, and it's because of you. So continue. 
Yeah, I'm going to apologize for that. Um, I got a little excited after the way we just completely dominated the first half of that game. And uh, you would think I would know better as a Houston Oilers fan. Um, <laughs> you would have thought I'd known better, uh, that it just wasn't – that anything is possible. But, uh, but I did it anyways. And, yeah, fortunately we got a couple interceptions uh, in the midst of all that craziness. And, uh, and Tim Flanders do- did what Tim Flanders does. And- yeah, uh, bailed us out there took uh, over. at the end and took over the game phenomenally. So, uh, again, you know, I don't know. It's weird because I don't know if that game makes the list if we finish off the second half the way we did the first and it's just a blowout cakewalk into the national championship. Um, also of note in that game, Dax Swanson had an interception late and – it broke the all-time interception record for Sam Houston as well. Kind of a notable personal yeah. achievement. I believe it was his 13th interception of his career, which set the new all-time record. Yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm just glad we won, um, and I didn't screw the whole thing up by calling you at halftime. Me too. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's six, see. 6-11 matchup. We already have men's basketball beating Nichols in the 2000 tournament. What's your matchup there in that 6-11 game? So number eleven, we went back to nineteen ninety six. Uh, Brenda Gray and the volleyball team um, had a good season. Uh, finished second, I believe, in the Southland that year to Stephen F. Austin, who was kind of uh, uh, their nemesis in terms of uh, not being able to get past them in the conference um, during that stretch there in, in the nineties. Uh, but they went to Nacogdoches, won the conference tournament uh, as the two seed and got to play an NCAA tournament play-in game at home against Grambling uh, and picked up an, a very convincing three-set victory um, and got to go on and play San Diego State in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Max, they lost. They did take a set, though, off San Diego State there. Um, but, again, this is really just recognizing, uh, you know, NCAA tournament play carries some weight with it. Um, and so I think it had to be considered, and that was a that was a unique situation back then to get a uh, have a home game, an NCAA tournament game. And if I remember uh, correctly, I don't think it was necessarily seeded as a play-in game just because it was teams sixty-three and sixty-four in the bracket. I want to say it was a predetermined Southland champion versus SWAC champion to get into the NCAA tournament. I think that you are correct, that that was how they had done that. Um, and, again, because when I went back the other day after we started talking about this, and I looked at the record for that team that year, they were 25-15, and 15, um, you know, uh, didn't have a, a stellar out-of-conference. I think they had beat Alabama in a, in a tournament, um, had played well against some other, you know, Power 5 teams without winning. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, they didn't strike me as being, if you're thinking of it like we do today, that, you know, your play-in game is your last team in, um, that, that that just wasn't the case there. Um, but you, if you remember, Jason, uh, that was, it was really kind of a weird thing. It was on a Tuesday night, the week of Thanksgiving. That was the day, like, the, and back then we didn't have the whole week off for classes. Um, and so, but, but campus was closing that day, like, School was going to be out Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The dorms were closed. Uh, I remember uh, I had to beg my roommate at the time because uh, I did not have a car that year, uh, and I needed a ride back to Houston. Uh, and I had to beg my roommate to stay that night because I mean everybody you know skipped town by lunch that day. 
so yeah, uh, sparse crowd. Um, uh, but that team was a fun team to watch. Uh, yeah. That was back when you and I worked in uh, worked in sports information and sat up there and took stats for volleyball. Uh, and, and Jennifer Crone was undoubtedly, uh, she was first team all SLC that year and was deserving of it, was one of the, you know, was a all-conference level player basically her entire career. Um, she had won the tournament MVP that week before uh, when they had pulled off the upset of SFA. Um, and then you had Amy Stabenoa was the, the setter, led the league in assists that year. Um, just a, a really fun team to watch um, and seeing what they were able to do there and get an NCAA tournament victory um, definitely puts them on this list. All right. So let's move to the five twelve game where uh, you matched up another baseball moment against the 22 inning TCU game. Right. So 2008, we are into the uh, Mark Johnson era of Bearcat baseball, where we really got accustomed to uh, NCAA tournament appearances. Uh, and the 2008 conference semifinals, Keith Stein, you know, crazy game uh, with the Bearcats rallied, and Keith Stein hits a two-run walk-off home run uh, for a 7-5 victory. Uh, Corpus Christi, right? Yes, Corpus. Um, and uh, I, I, I know, I think probably if, if, if you were going to make a list of maybe your top 10 all-time favorite calls, um, uh, did you have a voice after that one? Uh, not much of one. Um, yeah. The, it, it didn't – I had more of a voice for that championship game that year than I did a year later down in Corpus after the Mark Wyatt walk-off homer. But, uh, but yeah, this one, uh, it, it was a little over the top. Yeah. Uh, but what we were down, I believe, 5-2 in the seventh or eighth inning, uh, had rallied and scored, what, three in the eighth to tie it. Um, and, and then came back and, and got the Stein home run there. And then I, so again, that was a semifinal game. Um, we talked earlier about an example where, you know, you won a close game, but then didn't finish the tournament. And I think that's what helped put this on here was you got the walk off in the semifinal that propelled you into the championship game, which you then turn around and won the next night. So, uh, that carries a little more weight when the, when that moment, um, had you know bigger ramifications in terms of what it led to so uh uh yeah that's that's an interesting matchup though uh with the um uh five seed going against uh, a game that sam houston lost but is maybe one of the greatest in the history of the ncaa tournament compared to one that we won in dramatic fashion yeah i'll be curious to see how the voting goes on that one i'll be honest so let's go to the uh 413 matchup um once again pairing uh, the same sport against each other. We already have the 2001 playoff win against Northern Arizona as your four seed. So who are they going up against? Let me see if we didn't get something switched around because I had basketball penciled in here. I have football over Texas State 2011. No. Wait. I demoted them on the seed chart to the 14 seed. Okay, okay. We had the, the selection committee made a quick, you know, we, we ran the RPI through the system. And um, uh, so 2001 basketball um, at the 13 seed, um, Texas Tech in Lubbock, Bobby Knight's first season as the head coach for Texas Tech. 
and the 2001 Bearcat basketball team rolls into the United Spirit Arena and comes out with a 69-65 win. Um, first of all, that's basketball beating a Power 5 conference team is always a big deal. Um, just so people don't forget, that was, again, yes, that was Bobby Knight's first year. Uh, that was Texas Tech's only non-conference loss that season. They went 11-1 and in non-conference. Uh, they ended up going 23-9 and overall. They finished fifth in the Big 12. Uh, made it all the way to the Big 12 tournament championship game uh, and actually got an NCAA tournament at-large bid that year. So that was a really good Texas Tech team um, against what would eventually be a really good Sam Houston team. That 2001-2002 season was a really frustrating year. Um that is the core group of guys that led the 2002-2003 championship. Uh, Donald Cole, Felton Freeman, Jay Oliphant. Um, who's my point guard, Jason? Um, Robert Shannon. Robert Shannon, yeah. Um, that whole group of guys was uh, junior college transfers coming in as juniors. Uh, crazy talented. Good enough that they went on the road and beat Texas Tech. They went on and beat Nebraska later that year. Uh, but finished the season 14 and 14. Uh, they only went nine and 11 in conference. Uh, and I looked at it last night, just, just how much potential that team could have had to put together a two year run. Um, they lost seven conference games by five points or less. Five of those seven losses were by three points or less. And that doesn't include an overtime loss at San Antonio that they ended up losing by seven. Um, so, I mean, could have easily been a top two or three team in the league that year uh, and didn't even make the conference tournament. Uh, you remember, lost a weird Friday afternoon game against Lamar to finish the season, and that was a year they only had six teams in the conference tournament. Yep, finished seventh the, that the, year. The, the winner of that game was going to get the sixth seed, uh, and Lamar came in there and won, uh, like I think, 64-58 uh, and didn't even make the conference tournament. So, um, again, because of that, I, you know, that, that whole 2001 team is one of the greatest, you know, just missed opportunities. Uh, but yeah, Bobby Knight, first season at Texas Tech, there was so much hype around that. And obviously they did a great job, um, with that team. Um, but being in that arena that night, uh, it was, it was really kind of fun. Uh, it was a little, it was a little awkward afterwards because everybody in, in Lubbock, uh, especially everybody around the athletic department, you know, it had, they'd won their first three games. Um, everything had been honky-dory. Nobody had seen, like, you know, mean, scary, bad Bobby Knight yet. <laughs> uh, and literally, like, you could see the fear in people's eyes in the hallway after the game. Like, they did not know what was about to happen because they had a double-digit halftime lead that we overcame. And – it was it was just really fun to to go sit in that press conference and 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 just watch the people uh, and they got their first taste because Bobby was very short that night he was not in a good mood uh, and and he gave he gave it to several reporters that asked you know not the best questions in the world um, but but uh, just a a fun night and anytime you get a win over a Power Five program especially in basketball that's that's notable so my 14 seed is one that you were referencing. Uh, was the football win over Texas State in 2011 to end that season, to finish the perfect undefeated season, uh, and propelled Sam Houston to the number one national ranking heading into the playoffs that year. Um, maybe just an added little bonus that that was Texas State's 
you know, going away game um, as they were leaving the Southland Conference. And it was kind of a, you know, smile and wave and say, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Uh, but if I recall, that was – by that point in the year, not only was the team playing really well, um, but, you know, that season – kind of had a feeling Jason you know offensively that that crew could basically it felt like if they wanted to score on every play they could yeah um and and to go out and really just dominate the way they did that day um uh, again I know the 2011 season is its own standalone as a championship team but that particular game that year um and, and again just because it was against sort of you know your your other arch rival um, who was, you know, moving out of the neighborhood because they thought they were too good for us anymore to uh, send them off like that was especially nice. Yeah, the conference championship had already been wrapped up. Um, that happened the week before. But you're you're right. You're still playing for you're playing for a lot there um, in terms of just ultimate bragging rights because there's probably not another matchup, you know, anytime soon, and it certainly hadn't happened since. So you're playing yeah. for the final bragging rights there, an undefeated regular season, and then because of uh, I believe it was Montana State lost to Montana in the uh, the brawl of the wild, um, the Bearcats moved up to the number one spot in the polls that that next day as well. Very nice. All right, so let's move on. Your two fifteen matchup. We've already talked about number two comeback we, at Eastern Washington. And yeah, so. I just didn't feel I, – I know that the Battle of the Piney Woods is, is, is its own thing um, that certainly stands out in the moments. But I just didn't feel a list would be complete if we didn't have at least one football Battle of the Piney Woods moment. Um, and one that has always stood out for me uh, is 1997, uh, home game uh, against number seven, Stephen F. Austin. Uh, and if you remember, just again, we, we mentioned this earlier, 90s football, uh, I think we had the 91 season was an eight-win season. And other than that, um, Sam Houston did not have another season with more than six wins in the 90s. Yeah. Um, people got, may have forgotten. We got excited in 99 with a six and five year with Chris Alupka. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, thinking about where the programs are now, a lot of people forget, I looked at this last night, from 88, to 2002, 15-year window, Stephen F. Austin was a top 10 team when we – they were a top 25 team 10 times when we played them during that 15-year stretch. And during five of those, they were a top five time, including 95, 96, and 97 consecutively. They were seventh, fourth, and seventh those three years. Uh, and that 97 team had two – future NFL guys and Michael Ricks and Jeremiah Trotter that were on that team. Those guys could play uh, a little football. Yeah, and that was, uh, you know, just not a uh, not one of the best Sam Houston teams that we had had. But, again, that was one of those, you know, we had won the year before um, at SFA uh, against the number four team uh, in a very ugly game. Uh, Johan Spree with a, a big, what, 70-yard punt return. 71, I think, kind yeah. of. I mean, that game was just, you know, if it hadn't been played on artificial turf, it was, you know, just uh, three yards in a cloud of dust and just punt, punt, punt. Just not not very fun. Uh, but we got that win. And then the 97 game, um, I think we're down 28-27 late and we're driving. 
near the 40-yard line, about maybe a minute left, and you're trying to decide, you know, we're a little bit outside of field goal range, and fourth down, we go for it, and, you know, have to convert to keep the drive alive, and Benny Wiley busts through the left side of the line and takes it all the way to the house. Um, uh, and that was really, for me, again, 97, that was my third year in school. Um, we had... Uh, you know, I hadn't gone to the game the year before over in Nacogdoches, uh, and we had gotten beat pretty good my freshman year. So that was my first real taste of excitement of the Battle of the Piney Woods. And and again, and then if you don't remember, we had to sweat because uh, SFA threw a couple balls downfield and got it down to about the 30 with about 10 seconds left, and they got two or three throws off into the end zone. Mm-hmm. Um, where I, everybody in the stadium knew they were just going to throw a jump ball every time they could to Ricks in the end zone. And we had them basically quadruple covered uh, and managed to knock it away on either two or three consecutive plays before the clock ran out. Um, so, yeah, had to have some Battle of the Piney Woods, and that was one of the best ones that I could think of uh, that was just a, a fun and a huge upset, too, because SFA was a, uh, a, a national powerhouse program during that, that stretch of the 90s. All right, one more. Let's move to your play-in game. All right, so our play-in game, our 16 seed matchup, uh, 2000 football season. We play Louisiana Lafayette to start the year down there. We've never beaten a Division One team before, and pull out the win that night on a hot, humid, miserable night in South Louisiana. Thank goodness we won because it would have been uh, not very fun to be there. Um, again, it's the first win in div- division, you know, against a, a bowl subdivision team, if you will, for today's vernacular. Um, but that was a really bad Lafayette team. Um, and like I said, that was really sort of the, the foundational building core of what was the team that Josh McCown came and took over as quarterback the next year. So, um, it gets the recognition uh, of being on the list since it was our first one against the bowl program. Uh, and it is matched up against, and you're going to have to give me the year here, Jason. Um, but soccer against Texas Southern, um, 2004, second year 2004, of the program. For the uh, etching our name in the NCAA record book with a 23 goal beatdown of Texas Southern. Um, uh, again, normally one sided blowouts uh, don't necessarily make the list, but uh, as we have with some others, when when you get when when your performance makes it into the NCAA record book. Um, I think it has to be considered in terms of greatest games. And anybody that knows anything about soccer, I mean, twenty-three. How do I don't even know how you score twenty-three goals in a game? Yeah, um, and it you know you look at the historical significance of that. At the time, it was one goal short of the NCAA record for goals in a uh, in a match. Um, I think it still stands as the number three game all time in goals in a match. The 59 points that were scored, so goals and assists combined, the 59 points is still the most in an NCAA women's soccer game in NCAA history. Wow, incredible. So, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, NCAA record performances uh, definitely garner consideration in, in making the bracket, so so they are in. All right, so that is your game's bracket We've uh we've gone well over um what I thought we might hear. We've talked a lot. Um, anything else that you want to touch on on the other parts of the bracket, the moments, the players, the championships, and any thoughts you have on the seedings that you see there? You know, everything. Uh, I'll be interested to see how it plays out um, as we start to whittle it down when you get towards thirty-two and sixteen. 
uh, and, and really start to look at some of the details on some of those. Um, I, I think the players bracket is probably the most difficult because um, uh, you're getting into folks from different sports and how do you compare. And uh, so I think that's going to be a really tough one, but uh, uh, a lot of fun stuff when you look at both the championships and the moments and the games. Uh, and then even remembering some of the individuals, uh, student athletes who were a part of making those things happen. Uh, a lot of fun stuff to look back at. All right. Good stuff. Well, the voting's going to happen this week, coinciding with what be would be the NCAA tournament dates. So, um, you know, we'll do all the voting and then let's catch up again next week. Let's look at the way everything, uh, kind of shook out and take a look at the sweet 16. Sounds good. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks. Season tickets for the 2020 football season are on sale now. Secure your seats today and ensure you have the best view as the Cats look to claim a Southland Conference title. The Bearcats will play five games at Bauer Stadium this season, and as always, your season ticket will guarantee your spot at the Battle of the Piney Woods. You won't want to miss the action at NRG Stadium as the Bearcats look to make it 10 straight wins over SFA. To purchase your tickets, log on to GoBearCats.com slash tickets or call the Athletic Ticket Office at 936-294-1729 and we will see you at Bowers Stadium this fall. Eat them up, cats. And welcome back to Chasing the Cup. Joined now by Cody Stark. And uh, Cody, you had the achievements by a player list. And I know that one was a difficult one to... uh, to break down but first off kind of want to set up your background as a Bearcat and covering this team uh you started what 2002 with the Houstonian as a student writer is that yeah that's is that is that about right 2002 so you you went through this as a student writer and then with the Huntsville item for for many years at the Huntsville item and then now working for the athletic department before we dive into lists let's just talk a little bit about some of your favorite memories as a Bearcat I've got to start off with the the national championship run that the uh, football team had um, that year. They went undefeated all the way to the end. And, you know, just I remember because back when I covered, I was out of sports at that time. You know, I had moved over to be the news editor at the item. And so I was getting to enjoy it as a fan. And when I covered the Bearcat football team, they were not very good. I had Willie Fritz's first season, and you could see it. Tim Flanders' emergence, you know, Brian Bell coming in. You could see the building blocks of some great stuff. And then sitting there in that Montana game, going back and forth to Sam Houston and just being in that moment, it was like, wow. You know, I didn't know that this is what Bearcat football could be. And then you got to go back to the NCAA tournament teams. You know, the 2003, Donald Cole hitting the shot against SFA. That's up there, huge. You know, the uh, the Ashton Mitchell, Clavel, and um, Corey Allman team, 2009-10, that went to the dance. I mean, it's probably one of the best Southland Conference basketball teams I've seen in the years that I've been around it. And, you know, just as recently as last year, you know, my first sport uh, when I joined the athletic department was softball and the amazing run that they went on to win the Southland Conference tournament and go on and, and beat Texas, upset Texas in Austin, in the regional. I mean, it's just a lot of great memories. All right, so you had the task here on our uh, our bracket of breaking down the players. And we do want to say that this is not the 16 best players in Sam Houston history. This is the 16 top achievements by a player. So things that our athletes have accomplished 
here at Sam Houston. So a little bit different take on it. As you sat down to kind of break this down and and put the put a number one through sixteen on this, what was kind of the process for you like? First, I had to kind of just sit back and and process it, you know, because you think about all the stuff that's recently happened. We've had some great things happen in the athletic department, um, in our sports, in just recent years. But then you've got to go back and remember, hey, you know, the stuff that happened several years, you know, back further and and remember how great those were when they happened and just refresh yourself and not get caught up in the the here and now. So let's go ahead and dive into your list and uh, we'll start off with your number one overall seed, the top seed, Jeremiah Briscoe winning two Walter Payton Awards. That, to me, was just a no-brainer. We're talking about the equivalent of the Heisman Trophy in FCS football, and FCS football has come a long way. There are great players out there, and for Jeremiah to come in, you know, the university had never had a Payton Award winner, and he went and, you know, made history winning back-to-back. You know, I think the only other uh, person that did that was Amante Edwards at Appalachian State, you know, that great teams that they had. And, you know, he was a great football player. And it's just, you know, Briscoe, just do, being able to bring that to the university was something. And it should be noted, his second Walter Payton Award, he did it as the second team All-Southland quarterback. I know, and that's one of those, you know, asterisks. You look back and you're like, how did that happen, you know? But it's the voting and in, in, in the way things go sometimes in the Southland Conference. They don't always go with the best player you know, overall, they go with the best player, maybe on the best team. And that season, uh, I think, was it Nichols? Uh, Central Arkansas. Central Arkansas's quarterback got it. And, um, you know, he was a good player, but it's kind of tough when the Peyton Award winner, second team all-conference. All right, so your number two seed, you went Clayton Fritch as your number two seed. Yes, and this, to me, is another one. You've got to look at what he was able to accomplish as a sophomore last year. You know, he won the – uh, he, he medaled. He medaled. He's the first Sam Houston um, outdoor athlete to medal at the NCAA championships with a bronze. But then he went to the national stage and he won, you know, the gold medal at the, uh, you know, this is kind of a long one, the U23 North American, Central American and Caribbean Athletics Association championships. We're talking about some of the best amateur athletes in the world, you know, especially down there. And then he goes off and he gets uh, – he medals uh, with a bronze at the Pan American Games, and that's a precursor to the Olympics. You know, a lot of those guys. And uh, Chris Nelson from South Dakota, who's an absolute beast in the pole vault, he – you know, Clayton went toe-to-toe with him twice, and they very well could represent – if we have the Olympics, you know, could be on that team in 2020. Yeah, certainly something to, something for us to keep our eye on. And watch, but yeah, you know, you talk about the run that he made, especially at the outdoor championships, because you know there were there were quite a few really good pole vaulters in that uh, Mondo at LSU as well, um, and to finish in that top three group um, on you know with two guys who you know some people believe can medal at the Olympics, and for him to kind of thrust his name into that group. I think was big, and, uh, you know, it, it was kind of all part of that 2019 spring that we had here for Sam Houston. So, okay, number three seed, you went Luke Perhoda being named the stopper of the year. This is one of those ones that, you know, at first I, when I was kind of hammering it out, you know, I kind of had it lower, you know, had him seated a little lower. But then I was I had to remember 
going back and look at that season, you know, look at what he was able to accomplish. Again, like Briscoe, this is one of the major, major awards in college baseball. There's a lot of great players in college baseball, and he went 18 of 19 on saves. And also he was he was kind of a building block. And if you remember, you know, a lot of people, you look at it 8 of 19 saves, those weren't like one-inning saves. Mark Johnson, you know, helped build up this baseball program. Luke Prohoda was a part of that, and he would go out there and he'd be like, hey, you go three innings and get let's get this win. And they won the conference championship and went to the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I actually think – Thinking back on that season, his last save, I think he got the save here. I'm doing this off the top of my head without researching it. Would have been in that regional, in the win over Troy um, in the second round of the regional where they beat Troy. And I want to say it was like a three and two-thirds inning kind of save. Like he had everything he had in him and gave everything and had nothing left in the tank after that game where they knocked off Troy and moved on to face Southern Miss uh, the next day. But, you know, I want to say it was a rather lengthy outing for him to get that say. But, yeah, you know, in that 2007 season as well for the Bearcats, I mean, you also had Bobby Verbeck, who was a first-team All-American, Perhoda, a first-team All-American. The Bearcats that year had two first-team All-Americans. The Big 12 had two first-team All-Americans. That, that was a fantastic team. And like I said, it's just it, look at where the b- baseball program is now, and that, that set the stage. So Luke Prohoda, stopper of the year. I mean, who else would you – you just had that feeling when if the Bearcats were winning by one, if it was the second inning and he came in, he was going to go the rest of the way and he was going to lock it down. All right, so we go to bowling for number four, Janine Kuwahara winning the Elite 90 Award not once but twice. Yeah, that's something that, it, you know, it, it embodies the – what a student athlete is you know she came in the bowling program you know hit the ground running won a national championship early you know it's been six very successful and she's getting it done in the classroom and when we're talking for those that don't know anything about this award you know it's the 90 sports the top you know student athlete who competes for a champ national championship and the, the in the grade point average what they do in the classroom and for her to do that that's that's just remarkable you know one year let alone two i mean wow and that's not just 90 Division One athletes. This is 90 athletes across Division One, Two, and Three every single year. So this is a very small pool of recipients. And to be part of that, uh, yeah, is it, it's quite remarkable. All right, so let's go to your five seed. Once again, we don't have to go very far for this one, but William Holcomb advancing to the semis of the U.S. Amateur. I remember when I was a young kid, Tiger Woods, the talk of, you know, winning the U.S. Amateur each year and everybody talking about how great this guy was going to be, and it just really blew it up. And then to see Will, you know, walking, you know, walking the fairways, you know, here he is, he makes this incredible run, comes out of nowhere. You know, nobody knew who Will Holcomb was. He's playing against some of the top amateur golfers in the country, and he comes out and he goes on this run. It's on Fox. You know, we're not talking about Fox Sports, Southwest, whatever. Big, you know, national headlines, and Will was kind of stole the show. You know, he's such a nice guy. He's funny, and, you know, just the way he kind of captured the imagination of, you know, the golf world and, you know, maybe just your casual fan who's, you know, hearing him talk about duck hunting, you know, and how he likes the, you know, he gets a bigger thrill of the birds come, you know, the ducks coming in, you know, to light than he does, you know, than he did. You know, it's just his personality, and it just was really big, you know, a national thing for Sam Houston State. I think that was the big thing about it, too, was 
everybody got to, you know, those of us who know Will and have been around the program know what kind of person he is. And I've had the opportunity to travel with golf on a couple of occasions, and um, he's a fun guy to talk to. And you never know what he's going to say. And so for, I think, the whole country to see his personality, I, th- I, I think that was as big as anything because – he was a guy that Curtis Strange liked talking to and liked talking about, you know. And uh, I think that was as big as anything, just to see the nation. And, you know, I got a chance to – I was fortunate to fly out there. And uh, so I walked Pinehurst with him for uh, for that semifinals. And just talking with people in the gallery, they loved him. I mean, they absolutely – they had no idea probably where Sam Houston State was. They probably thought it was in Houston. But they loved Will Holcomb, and that was that was one of my favorite things about it. Yeah, and also probably Crockett, Texas, has never been mentioned on primetime television, and he put it on the map. You know, good country boy from Crockett, Texas. All right, so now let's move on to number six, Timothy Flanders. This, you know, you just talk about a guy that just made an impact on – you know, this university's athletic department and the success. You can't look any further than Tim Flanders. I mean, to be the all-time, the conference's all-time leading rusher is just the tip of the iceberg or what he was. Um, Just a fantastic football player. He, you know, like I said, you know, back when I covered the Bearcats, you know, there was never any shot at conference championships. Tim Flanders is arguably the best player in the country. He, you know, he set out the first, the second half of a lot of games because they were winning – you know, they were up big. And just the things that he was able to do, you know, you go back to that Eastern Washington game where, you know, late in the um, in the semifinals, you know, he, they, hey, they gave him the ball and he took that and he carried the, the Bearcats to a victory, I mean, on his shoulders. You know, they went for it on fourth. You know, just give him the ball and let him win it. And he was just an outstanding player, a great guy. And just, you know, you, you hate that he didn't ever have that chance to win a Walter Payton Award because – you know, like I said, he his numbers weren't quite as impressive as they could have been had, you know, Willie not wanted to save him and not risk injury when they were up big. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing. You know, you look at, uh, you know, where his career was and how it spanned 2010 to 2013, and you're really getting into very much a passing era of college football. But for Flanders to break the Southland Conference rushing record, um, I, I think said a lot about – what kind of player he was that he was able to do that in really an era that didn't maybe value the running back as much. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the things that kind of gets lost here is, you know, his senior year when he got injured, you know, because you kind of, you don't remember, you know, that's your lasting impression, not the guy that was just an absolute beast. But you're right. I mean, those Sam Houston teams, they ran the football and they were fun to watch. You know, you never knew what direction they were coming from, you know, back and forth. And, you know, Tim Flanders, you know that was towards the end of the uh, the run offense, and now everything's spread, and you just don't see that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah, let's move on to number seven, and once again, we stay a little more recent. Colton Cowser, Team USA, being the MVP of the Cuba Series, and what he was able to do on a national stage. Yes, this is kind of piggybacks off of uh, Clayton. You know, seeing that Team USA, here's a guy that has a shot at you know, possibly being on the Olympic team. I mean, and we're talking about what he did was, a, you know, playing with some of the best, you know, uh, prospects in the in the nation. You know, some co- great college players, guys that are going to be drafted in the first round of the draft. And then you go to international in Cuba, 
you know, who Cuba's teams are like all-star teams. You know, they're, they're a lot of great baseball. And, again, this is just that national presence. It Maybe it doesn't get the coverage that some of the other stuff did because um, it's Team USA baseball. But at the same time, here's a guy that's competing against some of the top amateurs in the world, and he was an absolute beast. And he's already got his own baseball cards. He does. <laughs> yes, he does, you know. so And that's impressive right there. And, you know, I mean, he just you look at that Cuba series, and, you know, he led the team in hits. He batted 438 in five games, you know, mul- several multiple hit games. I mean, just he's a fantastic player, and he's getting a lot of buzz. I hate to see the, the way the spring ended this year. was really excited to see, you know, what he could do. But – you know, moving forward, I mean, we're talking about a guy who could be the highest, you know, draft pick Sam Houston's ever had in the MLB draft. And not only that, and once again, we don't know what the summer holds, um, but baseball is back in the Olympics, and we don't know what decision's going to be made with all of that, but you have to figure he's got to be at least in that discussion of potentially being a Team USA baseball player. Oh, exactly. He has a great chance of doing that. And they've seen what he can do, you know, and what, you know, going on the road. So it'll go on, you know, traveling international and just, you know, it's, it's exciting. You know, we just hope that, that it all comes to fruition. All right. So your, your last of your top half of, uh, of your seeds will go to the eighth seed and uh, Tyler Adams becoming the first Bearcat track and field athlete to medal uh, indoor or outdoor. That right there is a, a, an outstanding accomplishment. Not you know, not to take anything from Tyler. I think that Clayton in his international you know success you know past that kind of just you know bumped him down a little bit down the list. But I mean, this is like comparing apples to apples. I mean, any of these, it, it was hard trying to decide. All these people were, were deserving. You know, could have been placed you know higher than they were. But Tyler, you know, the heptathlon, you know, he set a school record you know, in doing that and winning, you know, that first, the, the bronze medal, the NCAA championships. And that's just, you know, the kind of speaks for the athlete, the kind of athlete that he is, those multi-event um, um, comp- competitors. And not only, you know, I think one of the things that kind of gets lost in the story of that bronze medal, he was also competing in the, the open high jump, not just the HEP high jump. He was in the open high jump as a competitor as well. In fact, the open high jump was kind of going – along with the heptathlon at the same time. He was having to go back and forth. And, in fact, I think he was getting ready to run uh, to jump in the high jump when the awards ceremony for the heptathlon, everybody else was already on the stage. He had to run over, come get his trophy, and then run back to the high jump pit to continue to compete there. And that, again, that just shows his athleticism, you know, that he was able to do that. But, you know, just kind of one of the things that – you know, track and field just does not get the kind of, you know, pub that a lot of the other sports did. But for him to make history, be that first Bearcat. And we've had a lot of great athletes come through our track and field program over the years. So for him to be the first to medal, I mean, that just, that means a lot. All right. So as we work our way through the back half of your rankings, we'll kind of also look at the matchup. So your 8-9 game is going to be Tyler Adams, and then your nine seed, P.J. Hall, getting drafted in the second round of the NFL draft. That's the kind of matchup, you know, when you put these together that you want to see, that 8-9 matchup is always great. And, you know, P.J. Hall, I probably would have had that higher, but he kind of just came out of nowhere. Now, P.J. Hall was a fantastic football player for Sam Houston State, you know, two-time Buchanan Award finalist. Uh, but, you know, we all knew that he was a great player, but, you know, he you know he started generating a little buzz, you know, after the season. I think um, – 
in the bowl game uh, and so, you know, the workouts and stuff like that. And, but we didn't see this coming, you know, but John Gruden, LA, you know, with the Raiders, uh, Las Vegas now, my bad, but you know, the Raiders, he just kind of come out and kind of shocked everybody. But we Bearcat nation wasn't as shocked because we know the athleticism that PJ Hall had, you know, he was running down quarterbacks and just, just a fantastic athlete. And that's just a tough matchup right there. Eight, nine. 7-10, another tough matchup, and you're going to stick with your diamond sports here on this one. We've already talked about Colton Kowser as the 7th seed. Your 10th seed, you're going to go Lindsey McLeod. Yes, and we're talking about arguably, arguably the greatest softball player in school history and what she did last year in that run. Um, con- you know, She was the player of the conference player of the year, pitcher of the year. She was first team all-conference. She was the, in the conference tournament most valuable player. I mean, she was just unbelievable on that, you know, last season. And especially, you know, when she got into that conference tournament, she was just almost unhittable. She set a school record for strikeouts in in a single season, you know, like a game strikeout record. And then, you know, she goes, they make it to the Austin Regional. You know, she is fantastic in the circle. only allowed one run. And, of course, you know, um, Tiffany Thompson with the big two-run home run that – you know, on that in that upset over te- you know number nine Texas, you know, in their host regional, you just can't ask for a better, you know, just th- th- her is the whole season combined what she did. All right, so we're going to go to your six eleven matchup. We've already talked about Tim Flanders in this your six seed. Boy, this is a tough matchup. At eleven, Corey Allman breaking the Rupp Arena three point record. We were just talking about this the other day. You know. Coach Hooten, even this season, brought it up to the team. Uh, the basketball team is like, do you know who owns the record for most three-pointers made in a game in Rupp Arena? And they know. And then Corey Allman. Wow. You know, I think that, the, to me, like, the reason why I seated him where I did was because, you know, the Bearcats lost that game. But it was close. You know, they played a lot closer than people thought. I mean, you look back at that. Kentucky team there's a lot of guys in the NBA stars that were on that team and but Corey Allman just couldn't miss and he was a great player for Sam Houston State and a big part of the the success on that team that made it to the NCAA tournament and really kind of stole the show in that game I mean the the TV broadcast was obviously Kentucky broadcasters and they could not stop talking about Corey Allman they were in awe with what he was doing. And he was such a f- fun player to watch when he was here because he could shoot the three like that. But, yeah, it was just like he couldn't miss. And it was one of those nights where everything, you know, everything was going right. And if maybe if they had just a little bit more help, you know, but still that was just a, one of those great moments in Sam Houston history. I think it may have been the NCAA tournament that year. Uh, Bob Marlin got asked, what is Corey Allman's range? And I think his response was as soon as he steps off the bus. <laughs> and that would be about right. That guy didn't miss very often. All right, so we'll go to your 5-12 matchup now. And uh, once again, you're going to pair sports up against each other. You're going to go golf. And uh, we've already talked William Holcomb at 5, at 12, Hannah Alberto. And what she was able to do was not – it wasn't as publicized as Will because it was, you know, national stage. But Hannah, you know, going being able – to compete in the Augusta National Women's Amateur and then winning the tennis, uh, the women's Texas Amateur. You know, that says a lot. I mean, that's a, the best, you know, golfers in the state, amateur golfers and stuff. And she, and then she, in the national stage when she was at Augusta and getting to play there. I mean, that just says a lot. And because you, it's just hard to put into words, you know, just 
the historic importance of her being able to play at Augusta. Yeah, historically speaking, there's not a lot of women who've played around a golf at Augusta, and she got to be a part of this inaugural group of golfers to play in this tournament. Um, was invited back this year, in fact, and unfortunately is not going to get the opportunity to play because that uh, that event has been canceled. Um, but, you know, so happy that she was able to get that opportunity last year to do that. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, she got better as it, as it went on. I think she ended it the round uh, – um, she ended with a 74, you know. And so she – that's a golf course that just – tears up some of the, you know, the best golfers in the world. And she, you know, had a really, really nice showing there. All right, let's go to your 4-13 matchup. We've already talked about Janine Kuwahara as your four. And uh, your 13 seed, you're going Precious Madison. Yes, she's the first uh, Sam Houston State women's uh, track and field athlete to be named an All-American. Uh, in 2001, she finished eighth in the, the long jump. And, you know, that, again, is one of those – it's history in the making, you know, right there. There's always got to be a first to do it, and she was the one. And there's been a lot of great, you know, athletes that have come to Sam Houston and kind of followed in her footsteps. But to be an All-American, you know, finish eighth, at, you know, at the NCAA championships, that just says a lot. And uh, let's go ahead and go to your three fourteen matchup. Once again, you're kind of putting sports up against each other. The three seed, we already talked about Luke Prohoda. 14 seed, Braden Riley's 111 hits to uh, lead the NCAA that year. Again, you know, it's just two guys that were a big part of the history of, the, you know, where Sam Houston baseball is now. And Braden Riley was a great, great player, a great hitter. And I remember, like, back when that was going on, just like, you know, each day checking to see, you know, where does he stand here. And it's one of those things that, that comes down to the wire. But, again, there's – a lot of teams in college baseball, a lot of great players, and for Braden Riley to be able to say, "Hey, I led the nation in hits." I mean, that just that that says a lot. Yeah, he ended up that year tied with Dustin Ackley at North Carolina, who actually got a hit in his last bat in Omaha to get to 111 to tie Braden Riley, Ackley, the number two overall pick in the Major League Draft that year. And you know, that's one of those things. Well. You know, it's the you really, you know, you almost want to be like, does it need an asterisk right there? Because he had way more, you know, opportunities than Braden did. So, but that right there puts into perspective what Braden was actually able to accomplish that season. All right, two fifteen matchup. We already talked about Clayton Fritch, and at fifteen, we kind of have a a dual nominee in Jordan Vaughn and Brooke White. And I think what they did is kind of what propels them into this spot. Yes, they both – this is something that I, I don't know if it's ever been done. It'd be one, a good question to, to pose on the um, – to Cosida on those forums is they both got their 1,000th career kill in the same match. Um, that is just – to think about the, the odds of that happening is kind of mind-blowing. I mean, two great players – and for that to them be able to share that moment um, together, teammates, I mean, that's something that they'll remember the rest of their lives. All right, and let's move to your play-in game and talk to me about your play-in matchup. This, again, was tough because either one of these could have been up, you know, could have been seated. I mean, it's just like these are so close going down. But, you know, you we've got – I've got – we had um, Dean Choate and Sahaja, uh, Yamapal – 
you'll have to say it for me. So I, I missed Yama Lapali. Yama Lapali. PR always tells me, you know, you've got to say it fast, you know. But, you know, there, uh, Dean was the first um, four-time All-Southland Conference golfer uh, in the, from 1990 to 1994. And Sahaja last year, again, another one of those 2019. Um, she's a Southland Player of the Year. The tennis team made it to the semifinals of the the, um, the tournament. Finals. The finals, that's right. Made the, it finals. To the finals, my bad. Um, and uh, lost to a very good Abilene Christian team. And but they, in the, but then it's not so much that. But then, in the, during the summer, she went to the ITA regionals, uh, and she played against some of the top um, collegiate uh, tennis players in the country in this region. And she went on a run. You know, she lost her first match, but then she got in that consolation bracket, and she beat some very very good players to reach the finals. All right, so there are your matchups. For the players, um, have you had a chance to look over much of the other bracket? I have, and it's it's so there's some good stuff, and there's some good stuff that you know it'll be interesting to see how they shake out. Like you know, I see some potential upsets on a number on some number one seeds there. Yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting to see how all the voting goes. So, um, Cody, want to thank you for uh, for joining us here, and uh, we'll get together next week and kind of break down how all the voting went and. Uh, see what the fans thought, and see if they agreed with what you have for your seatings. It will be very interesting indeed, and it was a great opportunity to have. All right, so we'll be back in just a moment right here on Chasing the Cup. Season tickets for the 2020 football season are on sale now. Secure your seats today and ensure you have the best view as the Cats look to claim a Southland Conference title. The Bearcats will play five games at Bauer Stadium this season, and as always, your season ticket will guarantee your spot at the Battle of the Piney Woods. You won't want to miss the action at NRG Stadium as the Bearcats look to make it 10 straight wins over SFA. To purchase your tickets, log on to GoBearcats.com tickets or call the Athletic Ticket Office at 936-294-1729 and we will see you at Bowers Stadium this fall. Eat them up, cats! Welcome back to Chasing the Cup, and our final region that we're going to talk about is the moments. These are the things that really encompass a lot of different aspects of games and athlete achievements and championships. It's kind of a catch-all region, and uh, a lot of these moments encompass multiple events, and uh, it, it made it kind of hard to break down some of the certain things and... Uh, you know, ultimately, I think when, when it comes down to it and we started looking at player achievements and championship achievements and different games and memorable games, we, we probably could have honestly put together a bracket of about 128 things. So whittling it down to 64, this is our region where we were kind of able to cheat a little bit and combine maybe multiple events into one moment. So we'll go ahead and run down the uh, the top moments over the last 30-something years in Bearcat Athletics as a Division I program. And our number one moment, and it's one that we've talked a little bit about, is the 2017 baseball postseason and, uh, and what that team was able to accomplish. Uh, first off, winning the Southland Conference Tournament for a second consecutive year to get back into the regionals, getting drawn into the Lubbock Regional and having to go up and play 
a national-seeded Texas Tech team also getting paired up against an Arizona squad that had knocked the Bearcats out of the postseason the year before in the Lafayette Regional. And uh, and so, you know, kind of taking a look at that regional and then what they did, winning a Game 7 at Texas Tech, coming out of the loser's bracket to do it, and to punch a ticket to the first-ever Super regional, not just for Sam Houston, but for any Southland Conference school. They did it in dramatic fashion and uh, and earned a trip to Florida State. But, you know, even when you look at the Florida State and, and what that Super Regional meant, the Bearcats, the way they came out and played game one and really played well enough to win that first game against the Seminoles and, uh, and to fall to them there and then to lose in the elimination game. It was a 19 to nothing loss, a tough one. But after that game, I think one of the things that most people talk about, what they remember the most about that was the press conference that Matt Deggs and the players held afterwards and uh, and how it really it, it, it captivated the room to be sitting in there and listening to it happen and to look around and see the faces of the media members as Matt Deggs spoke and Lance Miles spoke and those guys who were seniors and, and had gone through all of that um, it, it was truly memorable, and uh, then, of course, the, the video clip of Matt Deggs that went viral, and, um, I mean, anybody and everybody on Twitter was talking about it, uh, celebrities, athletes, coaches. It, it, was, it was truly something we had never seen before, and it was tough to break any of those moments out because you had some great games in those regionals and uh, in that season, in that postseason so it kind of all becomes the number one moment, just everything that was involved in that run. So that's number one. For number two, uh, it's the Bowling National Championship. Uh, 2014, it was the Bearcats' third trip to the NCAA Championships, and uh, that was the year that it really all came together for them. It was, when you look at it, they they went up against Nebraska in the National Championship, and Nebraska had been the perennial power in women's bowling really from even the previous before NCAA even sponsored women's bowling, Nebraska was that top club team. And, uh, and so they had really been the, the benchmark of success in women's bowling and the Bearcats went on national television, their first time to ever make the TV show finals and beat Nebraska to win the first division one national championship in school history. Brad Hagan, did it in his fourth year, and he did it with a couple of seniors who were the first two signees to the program, and it helped build all of that with Kimmy Davidson and Neshka Cardona, and uh, and for those two seniors to cap off their careers with a national championship was was really special. For number three, this one is interesting, and w- when I say we kind of cheated and and put a lot of things together into one thing. Um, this this is really the one that I'm talking about because we probably could have done a whole bracket over just Battle of the Piney Woods moments. But number three is the Battle of the Piney Woods. However, you want to define it, remember it, look at the moments of it, just everything great that has happened, not just here in the last 10 years at NRG since it's been down in Houston, but the history of this rivalry and and what it's meant on the football field for both of these schools and for both of these programs and um, 
the memorable moments that come along with it. We, we've talked about the 1997 game, the home win against uh, SFA when they were ranked number seven in the country. But just the handful of upsets that have come along with this rivalry, and then you get down to NRG Stadium and the nine-game win streak for the Bearcats. The Flanders flip. I mean, that was a moment that was a singular play that kind of captured so much about about the Battle of the Piney Woods and, and what it meant when you look at the the picture that was taken of that of that moment and the reaction by the crowd. And then you look at the more recent Jeremiah Briscoe throwing seven touchdowns in the Battle of the Piney Woods and and all of the stuff that's happened. So you know, looking at it, it, it easily could have been the one seed, but I think it's hard to take away from what baseball did getting the Super Regionals and bowling winning the national championship. This is a pretty strong three seed, though, um, and I, I think probably has a chance to to make a little bit of a run. Uh, for the four seed in the top moments, once again, um, a lot of things we've already touched on here, but um, kind of combining a lot of things into one, and that's the spring semester of 2019. I mean, just this past spring and uh, what the Bearcats were able to accomplish. Nine total Southland Conference championships uh, in, in 2019. The Bearcats participated in six NCAA postseason competitions, the men's NIT in basketball. And, um, you know, it, it really it, it was a fun time, and it felt like, from early on, the success of one just led to another, and everything just kind of fed off of each other this past spring. And uh, it, it was truly a it was a memorable stretch that really kind of expanded into the summer. Even when you look at uh, what Will Holcomb did at the U.S. Amateur, which we've talked about, and Clayton Fritch at uh, at the Pan Am Games, and uh, what uh, Colton Cowser did with Team USA, Elise Chambers with the bowling team making Team USA at Junior Gold and just everything that it just kind of – it felt like everything, that momentum just kept going on even on the individual level. And um, so the, this past spring, that was um, – that, that really was something to, uh, to really behold and, and to watch it unfold was a lot of fun. The, uh, the number five moment is uh, Sam Houston's first – Commissioner's Cup, and that came in the 2005 season, and um, that was a goal of Bobby Williams for the athletic department for a long time. That was something that he uh, he made when he became the athletic director. He wanted to achieve, and uh, the Bearcats had not been very successful. I think their highest finish uh, when he had taken over was like sixth, and but they were typically seventh, eighth place in the Commissioner's Cup, and uh, and so he made that the department goal. And there were people who felt like that was a very far-fetched goal for this department to have because the success hadn't been there. And uh, so to win that first Commissioner's Cup, um, I know was was big for Bobby Williams. And, um, you know, that was a big moment for, for this department and really kind of set everything in motion. And, uh, you know, you look at really the last 15 years and how – incredible the success has been you kind of go back to that that first commissioner's cup of when a lot of this started at number six we're going to go back to the very beginning for sam houston and making the move to division one um 
They had spent a long time as an NAIA program and had had success at the NAIA level in multiple sports and um, ultimately decided to start making that move. And you kind of looked at the landscape of college athletics around them and what some of their rivals were doing. And we've already kind of talked to Cooter about that and, uh, and what, it was, what, what it was like back then and um, where everything was headed. And they, they transitioned up through Division Two and then into Division One. played one year in the Gulf Star Conference, and then became official members of the Southland Conference in 1987, kind of completing that transition to Division One, And, uh, you know, that, that decision to make that move is why we are where we are right now as a program. So, you know, you want to talk about the, the biggest moments um, at the Division One level for Sam Houston. You know, I think part of it has to start with the decision to actually move up to Division One, So that's the uh, – that is the sixth seed. Uh, at seven, we're going to go men's basketball, and uh, we'll go back to the late 2000s for men's basketball. And they had a 46-game home non-conference winning streak uh, for a good stretch. It was one of the longest in the nation, really second only to Duke at that time. And um, so not only was it big – locally here for Sam Houston, but really any time Duke played a non-conference game on TV, that graphic was always shown on ESPN. So you always had Duke and their non-conference home court winning streak and then Sam Houston's second right behind it. So it was able to generate some national publicity for a program that was really starting to uh, to come on as a, as a power in the Southland Conference. And um, that home court winning streak kind of led in and to that 2010 championship run. So that uh, that comes in as our number seven. At number eight, we're going to stick with the winning streak theme, and that's home football playoff success. The Bearcats have never lost a playoff game at Bauer Stadium. They are perfect 13-0 and playing at home. And, um, you know, part of that just comes from – the comforts of being at home, but there, there's so much more involved in that because there's been some really good teams who have come into Bauer Stadium that playing on their field, it may be a different result when you look at some of the teams that came in, the Northern Arizonas, the Montanas, Montana States, uh, Western Kentucky, the juggernaut that they had as a team back in 2004. And so for the Bearcats to get those games here at home and to continue to put up wins year in and year out when hosting playoff games, that's big, and uh, that gets the number eight seed. So kind of work through the second half of the bracket, and we'll look at the matchup. So the 8-9 matchup is uh, the women's basketball team making the Southland Conference Finals as the number seven seed. Uh, The Bearcats really went on a run down in Katy that year, and – Angela Beadle was a big part of that. Shanice Robertson, the guard on that team. And really those two players kind of took over. And, you know, the Bearcats, the way the tournament was set up, that was under the new format where you had to win four games in four days. And each round you were playing somebody who was playing their first game of the tournament. So they were always playing a fresh team. And they got all the way to the finals. In fact, led second half of that game, and it was tied late to Central Arkansas 
before finally just kind of running out of gas. And um, but you know that that was a team that uh, you, you look at what was on the line and the possibility of going to the NCAA tournament. And um, the thing about it was that was really neat was Angela Beadle was named the MVP of the tournament. And um, you just don't see that uh, somebody from a losing team being named the tournament MVP, but she really put that team on her back and, uh, and carried them all the way to the finals. Uh, Van Chancellor, the legendary Head basketball coach, of course, won all the WNBA titles with the Houston Comets. Van Chancellor was on the broadcast uh, for all four games of that Bearcat run. And uh, after the game, he came to the locker room and asked if he could speak to the team and uh, said it's something he's never done before. But he wanted them to know how impressed he was with with what they had accomplished. And, uh, you know, he ultimately felt like playing four games in four days was just too much. And uh, it, it kind of caught, got the best of them. But um, he he spoke to them and wanted them to know how much he thought. So that uh, that's actually going to make up a pretty interesting uh, eight nine matchup. So we'll see where the voting goes on that. Our seven ten game. We talked about the forty six game win streak for men's basketball, and then the number ten seed. And this is one that um, you know it's kind of gotten mixed reactions when I talk to people. We talked to Cooter about it already. But it's football playing after Hurricane Harvey. And, uh, yes, it was a regular season game. Uh, it was a non-conference game against Richmond. But there was so much hype surrounding that game. And uh, it, it would have been easy just to cancel it. But a lot of work went into place uh, to, to have that game. And it was ultimately moved to Baylor and played – there in Waco, and uh, the game was originally supposed to be on ESPNU. Well, that got canceled, and uh, we were able to work and get the game on ESPN3. And, you know, we didn't know how many people were going to show up for that game. And to have 8,000 Bearcat fans show up and be in attendance for that just showed how much it meant to everybody that that game was being played. So, once again, another interesting matchup, a 7-10 matchup up against the 46-game win streak for men's basketball. Those games easily could have been flipped. At the 11 seed, we're going to go 2007 men's basketball beating Texas Tech, and that's paired up against Sam Houston making the move to Division One. That 2007 game against Texas Tech, that was in Huntsville. It was in Johnson Coliseum, and that was big because Bob Knight was coming into Huntsville. He was bringing his Red Raider club down here, and – you know, one thing about, you know, you look at baseball and a lot of times you get a chance to see the bigger schools come. But in basketball, those games are always played on the road. So it was not only big that Texas Tech was coming to Huntsville, but Bob Knight was bringing his Texas Tech team down here. And uh, so just the hype around that game to begin with and then for the Cats to pull off the victory and and to win that one, was I know talking to a lot of people around there at the time, it was one of their top moments as a Bearcat was seeing that. And uh, so that's the number 11 seed. The uh, the five twelve matchup, we've already talked about the first of the Commissioner's Cup. Well, at 12 is a 12-game win streak, and it's the Southland baseball um, winning streak for the Bearcat baseball team. From 2007 to 2009, they won 12 straight games in the conference tournament. And... Um, one, it was the longest winning streak in Southland history, in tournament history. 
They went 4-0 in 2007, 8, and 9 to win the conference championships under Mark Johnson those years. And, in fact, the winning streak ended up stretching to 13 total games in 2011 after the Bearcats had missed the 2010 tournament. They won their first game of the 2011 tournament, giving them 13 straight wins in South and Conference tournament play, a mark that has not been matched and would be quite surprising if it ever did get matched again. At number 13, our 413 matchup is a uh, is another interesting one, and that's bowling making it to the NCAAs back in 2011 as a first-year program. And uh, that's matched up against the spring that we just had. But in 2011, the Bearcats' first year, not just their first year in the NCAAs, but their first-year program period, no team in NCAA history had ever made the NCAA finals in their first year in the program's existence. There had been teams that had competed as a club program years before, and then in their first year as an official NCAA program, they made the finals. But the Bearcats were the first team to start from scratch and in their very first competitive season make it to the NCAA finals. So that's your 4-13 matchup. Our 14 seed, our 3-14 game matched up against the Battle of the Piney Woods moments is the 2007 baseball team making it to the regional finals at the Oxford Regional. We've talked a little bit about this team on a couple of different occasions here um, as we've worked our way through this bracket. And uh, this moment really kind of centers around that extra inning game against Southern Miss. We talked about beating Troy uh, and what Luke Perhoda was able to do that. Well, then they had to turn around the next day, and they're playing Southern Miss. And they were down 7-1 to one late in that game, and the Bearcats – rallied to tie the game up and force extra innings. And each time that they looked like they were in control, Southern Miss would score in the top half of the next inning. So the Bearcats tied it up in the eighth. Southern Miss scored in the ninth. The Bearcats tied it in the ninth, so they go to the tenth, where Southern Miss took the lead. The Bearcats came back and tied it again in the tenth. In the eleventh, Southern Miss once again took the lead, and the Bearcats won it in the bottom of the eleventh inning to put them in their first ever regional final where they faced off against the host Ole Miss squad that was that year led by one of the top pitchers in the country in Lance Lynn, a guy who's still having success at the major league level. So that is the number 14 seed. We go to number 15, and uh, that's the accomplishment of Brenda Gray. She notched her 700th win as a head volleyball coach this past season, and so a big mark for her as she continues to climb up and um, move her way up those coaching record books. And, uh, you know, you look at what she's done with this program, the multiple South and Conference championships, appearances in the NCAA tournament, has uh, certainly done a lot for this program as the head coach of the volleyball program. And then finally, we'll go to our play-in game. And uh, there were two things that we kind of looked at here for this play-in game. And uh, the first one was Luke Pluchek uh, and his two back-to-back games down in Minute Maid at the College Classic, making diving catches against TCU and Texas Tech, both of those getting in the top three, one of number two, one of number three on SportsCenter's top ten. Luke Pluchek was the talk of college baseball for a couple of days. In fact, seven days later, he came back and had another top ten catch 
in a home game for the Bearcats. So Luke Pluchak is SportsCenter Top 10 Moments at Minute Maid Park, and that's paired up against another Battle of the Piney Woods moment, but one that really kind of stands out on its own, and that's the 2001 game here at Bowers Stadium. It was a Thursday night TV game and really kind of introduced the couch potatoes to uh, to everybody. That was a feature that we had uh, for a, a few years where students could bring couches, sit them in the end zone, and that game on that Thursday night, the couch potato section was probably five people deep from pylon to pylon at the back of the end zone on the scoreboard side. Uh, in fact, the Bearcats had a couple of touchdowns scored in that end zone where they ran into the students and celebrated with them. Multiple flags thrown, 15-yard penalties, but uh, certainly a thrilling game and uh, a matchup of two ranked opponents and uh, kind of the first signal that that 2001 team might be something special. And, uh, and ultimately, they ended up getting the first playoff win in school history as well. So that is the bracket for the moments, and that is now your 68 best moments in Sam Houston Division I history. And however else it shakes out from here, we're gonna let uh, we're gonna let the fans decide it from here on out. So be sure and uh, check back on Twitter at Bearcat Sports and cast your vote for all the matchups. How you want to see these teams, players, moments, games all shake out. And uh, you know we're gonna do this over the next couple of weeks as we push our way through um, a period of time that's kind of unprecedented. Uh, for for all of us and uh, you know we try to figure out what we're going to do with no sports so we thought this would be something that would be fun and engaging and uh, allow us to continue to talk about Bearcat athletics when there's really nothing happening on the field so we'll be back next week and we'll kind of break down how this first round goes we'll see if we can get back in touch with Brian and Cody and Cooter and maybe see if we can find a few more guests to talk about this bracket as well All of that will come up next time here on Chasing the Cup. If you like what you're hearing from us this year, be sure to rate and review the show. If you aren't subscribing, you can do so on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Chasing the Cup is recorded in the Bearcat Sports Network studios in the new Wood Forest Athletic Center. This week's episode was written and produced by Jason Barfield. Broadcast calls are courtesy ESPN. The songs Hot Shot and Clear Progress are courtesy scottholmesmusic.com. This has been a presentation of the Bearcat Sports Network.